You're all called to the meeting. <laughs> December 7th meeting, Pearl Harbor Day, may they rest in peace. Uh, to order. Um, my glasses and my agenda. Do we have any public comment either from, uh, as Tom Mercer says, the Zoom world or the, the, uh, the room world? Uh, as usual, seeing none. Approval um, of the minutes for. November 29th. Assume everybody's right on. Mm -hmm. Can I have a motion? Motion to approve them. Second. 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 All, all in favor? Yeah, I need a roll call. George? Yes. Natalie? Yes. Stephanie? Yes. Cairo? Yes. Shana? Yes. Michael? Yes. And Nicole? Yes. Okay. Operating budget adjustments, town administrator's memo, Ms. Allen. Um, finance committee schedule? Did I? Never mind. <laughs> Never mind. I was reading from the minutes of the previous. Uh, this 2023 finance company, finance committee schedule. Um, does anybody have any? Objections or changes, or you're not going to be here. We have squished the budget hearings into three days in the past, right? So is that a TBD, depending on how well it goes? I would ask, Mr. Is that what your intention would be, Jamie? That's correct. Just to at least have holds. I think you know we evolved from one night, which was ruthless, um, and to four, which was decent. And I think last year we did it. <coughs> I think it'd be pretty tough to get under three, but I think that those are just on there so folks have a whole, depending on how all the dates go and stuff like that, yeah. Perfect, thank you. Mm -hmm. Any other comments? The only um, thing I would really mention, Chairman, is April 5th is Passover. Uh, the council moved that. Originally we had April 26th as the finance committee date because school vacation is also that month. Um, so I just want to note that uh, April 5th is Passover in case uh, the committee wants to pass over on that date uh, to observe that holiday. Um, we know that, you know, anybody watched the council meeting last week, maybe not, you know, there's certainly a debate about whether to observe every religious holiday, which ones, what not, uh, it's a tough call. Um, we know school districts do that, but there's a different reason why. Um, so I just want to acknowledge it in case the committee felt like they just want to punt in April and not have to meet or uh, oftentimes it's been very inconvenient for people that are away on that week of school vacation but that's also a week uh, we you know the committee could meet too uh, in April as well which I think would be April 19th so the council meetings are the 12th and the 26th so um, it's up to you guys I just want to avoid the issue and go to the 19th so just you don't have to make a motion to amend it, you can just say as amended to the 19th. We don't want to do too many more pop ups. Huh? <laughs> 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 All right. 
but all the other dates should be good. Yes. You, you're saying you don't, we don't need to vote on that, sir? You don't need to. Just, just like everybody's comfortable with it. Item B, stabilization funds. After the bond rating, just oh, that's right, John. The bond rating, Jamie. Yeah, uh, so, dude, Jaron, we put in the packet um, the most recent uh, bond ratings report, which just came out last week. Um, so we thought we'd just highlight for everybody. Um, <clears throat> great news, we maintained our AAA bond rating. Uh, so uh, good news there. Uh, and it seems that the AAA bond rating uh, is something that I believe this community has going to have to really make sure we continue to prioritize. Uh, we went out for the sale uh, this week for the borrowing for Schmidt's Farm, um, and we got a 3.444% rate. So that's very good. Um, I think it shows a little bit of signs that maybe the interest rate issue is at least calmed down from increasing. But I think clearly, if um, the bond rating was not a triple A, we were still a double A, that interest rate would be substantially higher. Um, and so that's a very good rate. So um, I just wanted to offer that and make sure the committee was aware it's online. Um, and uh, moving forward, um, as part of our financial policies, as well as um, saving money, you know, the old fashioned way of piggy bank, um, we'll still maintain, I think, uh, strong commitments in our capital and operating budget to making sure that our stabilization accounts um, are solid. We've done a great job increasing them, and it's cited right in here is, is clearly one of the main reasons um, for the continued stability of the AAA bond rating. So, happy to answer any questions on that. I have a question. Yeah. How often is that assessed? Only when we go out to borrow. S&P requires it, so we probably didn't need to do this. Because uh, there was no factor as to why we, why would we downgraded, but uh, when you go on a sale in this market, um, you know S and P and, and uh, movies and, and everybody you're gonna ask for it. Anyways. Got it. Okay. Wouldn't we have done it if the bar only was smaller? To say, but we had seven bidders, so it worked out. Does does a triple A bring you seven bidders versus? When you're in double A, you get three. No, it's no. more really the market just in general. And okay, there's a lot of activity out there. I think there's going to continue to be a lot of, <laughs> you know, it's you know, it's a. While things are good in Massachusetts, um, you know, overall, I mean, I think we still see ups and downs and volatility here and there. I don't think it's necessarily in a bad way, but um, you know, I think because there's such an active market. Um, financially and globally with so many issues that are in, in, injected into it, not just war, uh, petroleum or whatnot, uh, you're going to continue to get an active market. And obviously investors are looking for drops in the market so they can jump in. And that's really what's been happening. And so I think that that's something that's probably going to continue on. Do we get ratings from other agencies besides S&P or just S&P? Uh, traditionally just S&P. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, I think when we borrowed the buy trucks uh, a year and a half ago, it was one four four. It was. Yeah. That was uh, probably two and a half years ago now, but yeah, it was one four four. So again, the AAA couldn't come at a better time, and you know, just good management. Okay, any more questions? 
the stabilization fund update. Yep. Uh, so there's Joe, you just have a list here. Um, you know, Carrie uh, put together a chart from 21, 22, and 23. It's all in the packet. Um, you know, we're trying to put these in as a regular feature of some updates um, just to show everybody how things are going. Um, and, uh, you know, lo and behold, we're doing pretty well. I'm happy to answer any questions on it. We haven't made any drawdowns. Um, so things you know, look pretty good. And I'm guessing that as we get towards the capital plan in the winter, um, you know, you'll likely see from me um, some proposals to continue to go back to the policy of the uh, fire truck uh, stabilization, um, as well as the budget and the recreation fields. Um, and I know the council has also asked for the minimum policy contribution to the open space. So you'll start to see, um, you know, I know Mr. Chairman, as you know, we kind of took a hold on a couple of these while we were going through the pandemic years. Uh, but now that we're past that, uh, we're gonna try to get back to the policy schedule of making those investments. Um, because clearly it's working in our overall financial interest. What would cause some of them have gone down? <coughs> General is down. Hundred and seven thousand, hundred. Yeah. What would cause a decrease? Contributions. Is that it? Chris. Uh, well, it's a combination. There are contributions to some of them, but also uh, the market. We took a it's pretty big hit. It's an investment. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a breakdown of the investments? We have them. Yes. It, uh, so basically, if you look at these statements, especially take our old that big one. Sure. <coughs> so Christine Dini Finance Director. So basically, uh, you take the big one, the, the OPEP one. If you analyze and look at the breakdown, all of the losses are unrealized losses. Uh, you will see, you will, I don't think I've ever seen it where we have a realized loss, which means we sold the stock at a loss. You always hear the old adage, uh, you sell high, you buy low. That's basically the strategy of uh, these various funds. So we didn't really lose money. We just lost value, like the year before we were gangbusters and we increased value quite a bit. So. It's kind of like my retirement. Yes, like your financial advisor tells you about stocks, George. That's right. And, and I'm sorry, just to add to that. So that is kind of mired with because also in those numbers are any contributions. We uh, contributed almost a million dollars to our OPEP uh, in in that year. So it's just a combination of the two together. Budget update? Uh, so, Mr. Chairman, really quickly, I added this on there just to give everybody a quick update. So, the council did approve the adjusted budget um, that the Finance Committee did recommend uh, in early November. They approved it on November 16th. Um, so far, so good, as we kind of mentioned um, at the Finance Committee meeting. I did want to make uh, one uh, kind of announcement um, about some of the kind of a foreshadowing possibly towards FY24. 
in terms of my original fiscal forecast I put out, I kind of gave some comments on inflation. And you know, I think one of the things people really have to realize is <clears throat> what you read in the newspaper is delayed significantly by the time it actually hits our board. So to illustrate that point, when we're seeing public procurement bids on supplies and, and when we're ordering goods and we're trying to fix and maintain buildings, a great example um, that just came up recently is uh, our electricity contract was, was, uh, was at its end uh, in this December. Uh, it was town. Um, and we were paying just over a little bit 10 cents per kilowatt. Uh, I had signed a four-year contract back when, four years ago, uh, when electricity rates were good. As you can imagine, electricity rates have spiked quite a bit. Um, and so as an example of inflation and some of the impacts it's gonna have on the budget for the remainder of the fiscal year, as well as heading into 2024, and I'm <clears throat> counting my blessings that we got a 13.9 uh, cent per kilowatt rate, which sounds small. Um, it is a very good rate. I did sign that contract for four years because what's important to me is stability. So now I have predictability. Uh, fuel security is, is incredibly important right now. Um, and energy security uh, for our facilities and street lights and all the other reasons why we need it uh, for town operations. Uh, but just to put context onto that, that is a $350,000 a year hit each year for the next four years over what we're paying right now. So when you think your costs only go up 2.5% every year under the revenue source of, of the property tax levy, we're not even talking yet about health insurance. We're not even talking yet about pension assessments. We're not even talking yet about the labor issues that I know the schools will talk about soon and that we're all seeing in terms of cost. I just need to emphasize that is an excellent example of we have to have our, we have to have our feet on earth. We can't be up in the sky talking about pie in the sky ideological fights of the way life should be. The way life really is in reality just like every homeowner in town got lucky this year that we signed a contract a few years ago for your home electricity at 10 and a half cents per kilowatt. Well, next year, families might feel that a little bit more because that contract that we signed for municipal aggregation will now come off the books. Every resident will probably pay more in electricity next winter. I know most homeowners will say, oh, well, that's next winter. I'll worry about that then. And I'm in the same boat myself. But just as context, $350,000 hit on electricity. Half of that I'm gonna to have to make up in this year for this year, okay? So that's gonna easily be a $200,000 hit that we did not anticipate um, in May, and I did not anticipate that even two months ago. And it just perfectly illustrates how inflation can really impact municipal operations, municipal budgets, because that money that would have been spent allocated somewhere else, I now cannot buy as much supplies to fix pipes and leaky this and tiles over here and water fountains there and you know whatever it could be. So um, if folks wonder why I've put on hold any major capital projects um, that we require borrowing or interest rates, um, this is a big reason why. Uh, because we don't really fully know and we're getting used to it. And you'll hear Brutus next week. Uh, at the council meeting, we'll give his snow and ice presentation, his infamous snow and ice presentation. I saved all of you this year for that. Um, but he's going to show, again, salt, sand, labor shortages, contractors, people that plow the streets. I mean, 
you know, these are not really discretionary things, right? There's a lot of other things we may talk about tonight or in other meetings moving forward that are really actually discretionary. These are really not discretionary items. It's just a cost of doing business. And we're seeing the same exact impacts on gas, water, other electric, uh, other utilities as well. And we're gonna see it on the cost of goods. So um, we know we'll do a good job managing our budgets. And at the end of June, if there are problems in accounts, um, you know, we'll go to the finance committee and the council after the budget set in May and we'll do some reordering uh, wherever there's some additional revenues that weren't spent um, for maybe personnel, you know, issues and stuff like that from people uh, moving on in jobs. But, um, you know, $350,000 for the next four years right out of the gate is, is, is for one issue like that is, is a pretty substantial increase that I think the committee needs to be aware of, the community needs to be aware of. And it needs to kind of give everybody at least some general sense of pause of um, making sure that as we move into FY24, um, you know, we could be seeing other issues like this uh, really put a big uh, hit uh, and dent into the budget. So happy to answer any questions on that topic or the, uh, the current budget as best they can. Um, just wanted to give that highlight. Thanks. Um, you mentioned that if we, people noticed any type of capital expenditures or things that we weren't going to move forward on, is there anything that has been brought to like our attention or to our level that is now getting peeled back? Yeah. Um, nothing that I'm aware of. I think the big thing is going to be, particularly in, in the facilities budget, uh, which affects both the town and the schools, because we obviously run, the, as you know, we run the school department facilities. The real reality is, is that we are just simply not going to be able to fix as many problems as people want um, you know you just um, you know you know if somebody's out on FMLA or on a medical or something like that I've got to fill them with a contractor of a plumber uh, I can assure you that the plumbing rates are not going down uh, you know, the electrician rates are not going down contracting rates are not going down so that's just going to end up resulting mainly in, in the facilities department for example it's really going to mean a, a significant reduction in our ability to triage problems on a day-to-day -day basis. It's going to have a big impact on work orders that departments put in, including the schools, um, on being able to fix um, items that two years ago, or actually probably items over the last decade, people have just gotten used to us fixing really quickly. Um, and so everybody just has to be aware that as we go forward, particularly with DPW, particularly with facilities, um, which are the two budgets on my half that really have the most exposure, right? Um, I think we'll know more, essentially for DPW, the big thing to do is do your, you know, dance to have no snow. Because <laughs> a bad snow year, you know, is gonna result in a cost that's gonna be, that is gonna possibly now we have some consequences come spring. So what we'll do is in DPW's case, is come April, we may be able to do less mowing lawns. We may not water the lawns of the municipal properties come the spring if we're short revenue. So we'll do things like that as we go through the rest of the year. Um, so the fields might not be able to be watered or something like that. That might save 100,000 or 200,000, which will make up for the difference in like electricity rates. But um, the message to the department heads has generally been that uh, for the last couple months, uh, they're getting a preview of the department heads meeting on December 16th. Um, you know, Lucas, you've already heard the message, so if you want to skip it, feel free. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, in, in all earnest, I think everybody, for those departments that have large expense budgets, um, you know, they're going to certainly be on notice throughout the rest of the year and make sure if, if you don't need to do something, 
let's just take a pause to make sure we don't get ourselves into a deeper hole come spring. Thank you. Any other questions? Uh, yeah, just. Uh, are there other large kind of multi-year contracts that you're in the process of renewing? Are those kind of what we should be watching out more for? Or are there kind of annual, that, like like you said, snow removal type stuff that, that you're more concerned about? That's a super question. I think it's both. Um, the good news is, is the main contracts for like utilities, but also collective bargaining, you know, in terms of personnel, you know, those are settled, uh, with the exception of one. Um, and the electricity one is also a big cost driver. Um, another one that's going to hit us next year uh, is stormwater. Um, we all have to pay. We don't. The town doesn't get off from its own fee, um, and so um, you know that's going to be another piece that's going to come into play. That's going to hit every resident next year as well, um, but it's certainly going to hit the town. So I would say largely the multi-year ones, Ty uh, Tyrell, have, have, have been mostly settled. I think to your point about the year-to-year. Um, snow and ice removal is a year-to-year -year thing, um, and I think we've talked about it before, but um, uh, it's really hard to get people to plow snow. So that just, it's, it's good old-fashioned cash <laughs> to get people to come in and do that. And, um, Brutus Lepson, uh, I don't have the slides in front of me, but um, the salt purchasing and some of those things, we have consortiums that work on those, kind of bulk purchasing. Um, the cost is still going way up for everybody. Um, uh, and fuel um, is one that's a multi-year contract that we normally do. We've actually decided this year on fuel and diesel to just kind of pay as we go. Um, we had an opportunity to, to, to buy into a contract earlier in the spring, and uh, we made the good decision not to. Otherwise, we would have been paying much higher than we're actually paying right now, because fuel prices have leveled off a little bit. But I just want to make note that it's still well over a dollar a gallon more today than it was a year ago. So while we all feel like, I think we probably all feel like a little relief at the pump, like just, like it's not 450 anymore, we're not climbing up to five bucks, still at 370, we're still a buck and a quarter higher than we were last week. But we're taking that one and just kind of seeing how it goes because I think the geopolitical issues have kind of, I wouldn't say they settled, but at least from a fuel perspective, they kind of leveled off. So uh, fortunately, we made the decision not to get into a contract. So that's a good example of the year to year that you're just talking about a minute ago that we will have to watch as we get to spring. Um, and you know, whenever you get to a, a cold weather season, we all know what utility companies do. It. It's like, you know, cost could go up, the demand goes up, you know, or the supply goes down. So um, so far, so good. We should be able to do that uh, pretty well. But that's a good example of the year to year that we'll be looking at in spring for sure. See if maybe we can enter into another multi year agreement. Um, hopefully, the fuel prices can down more. Anyone else? I just have a quick question to play off that actually regarding electricity. Um, so, I think you said it was 13.4. 13.9. 13 um, so, how has the town arrived at that? Um, so, do you guys use yeah. consultants to kind of measure what is the projection like over the next four years? And the day to day people, we don't have access to that. So yeah. I'm curious how that process looks. Um, I'm happy to bring our consultant in. Um, <laughs> if you think this is a deep dive, or you think the deep dive series with the schools is a deep dive, wait until you get into energy consultants, if any of you work with them. Um, we're very lucky to have Doug. We do have a consultant on retainer that we've worked with for many, many years. He's uh, incredibly good at what he does. We go out and do bits. Um, so I love that question because it 
shows some of the strange things that I do that nobody knows, which is, um, and Alicia knows, I do sit in my office every day for about a month going through energy uh, market numbers uh, and looking at one year, two year, three year, four year. It's just like any other bid. You, you, can, you tell the consultant, like, what do you want to look for? Do you want a green product? Do you want to pay more for that? Do you want a brown product? What companies do you want to use? Um, just to illustrate that, some companies have started to institute a rider policy where they're putting in a cost driver automatic increase at certain thresholds. Um, so you can, you can say 13.9, but in some contracts, the company will actually then put in a fine print of a, I'm sorry, it sounds low again, but a 1% 1, 1 of one mil might actually drive up another $100,000, but they're putting those riders in, and we're seeing those riders, obviously, because electricity company, utility companies are losing a lot of money, a lot of places, right? Um, think about the company versus National Grid. The National Grid rate for a homeowner this year is about 33 cents a kilowatt. The average resident in Franklin right now is paying 10 and a half cents only because we signed that agreement three years ago. So that company, you know, the distributor, is losing money on us, <laughs> essentially, not, not thinking that rates would have gotten to this point of inflation, right? So they're putting in these like little fine print riders, so you gotta look at those and say, we don't want to do business with those three companies because they're putting those automatic cost risers in, which you can almost guarantee they're going to exercise that right um, and say, um, and then there's other weird things in the contracts like where you do, if there's a lawsuit, where do you go to court, right? We're emphatic that we go to court in Massachusetts. Texas energy companies do not want to do business in Massachusetts. They want you to go to court in Texas. I wonder why. Um, and so you got to look at a lot of those details and kind of, say to the consultant, well, we want to go out to bid for this company, this company, this company. And luckily, we, we've done great business with a company called Constellation as a distributor for many years. And, um, and we were fortunate enough to get a sub 14 cent rate. So that, I say to the consultant, all right, you know, what's going to pass the smell test, right, based on the average resident? Well, under 14 cents. And, um, you know, every day we go out to bid, I get numbers, we're at 16 cents, 15 cents, 18 cents. I say no, no, no. And part of the trick is you have to be ready to sign that day when you get that. Um, um, it's actually the results of procurement are actually by uh, statute prohibited from public records law um, because you're dealing with a global energy market, which can be very, very disruptive, as you can imagine. Um, so we look at those bids. Um, we say yes, no, 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 whatever. And that's how we go through it. So we did probably, maybe for maybe the entire month, end of October to all of November, just constantly every day seeing a rate sheet first thing in the morning. Because <laughs> you know, global energy markets are done around the clock and you get the numbers at like 4 a.m., 5 a.m., stuff like that. So um, we still do get to frame out what we're looking for. Uh, we still do have that control, each municipality does. Um, and we do use a consultant um, who goes out and does that work for us and we work back and forth with um, with them to say, well, we you know, the consultant said this year, for example, well, I don't think a two-year deal is probably the way to go because inflation will come down. We expect a recession, so we might be able to hit that market in two years. But you know, you know, so you try to feel it out. I, I wish we could say we all are experts in this, but we're not we're trying to kind of figure it all out. Um, uh, but uh, it's an interesting process. So appreciate the question. Thank you. 
Okay, next item on the agenda, our friends from the school committee. Just have one thing ahead of time. Superintendent Lucas Chigier, our school business administrator, Miriam Goodman, and my fellow school committee member, Dave McNeil, who is also the chair of our budget subcommittee. Um, I'd like to thank Chairman Conley and the full committee for inviting us here this evening to be a part of this deep dive series. Um, I think having this type of presentation here at Finance Committee is hitting an audience that we don't usually get who watch the school committee meetings, so I hope this is, hope this is helpful to the community who has tuned in tonight. Um, we do have a number of slides to go over this evening, but I did want to share some additional information beforehand, just um, for you. Um, I know at past finance committee meetings, the question of declining enrollment has come up, and I believe I can expand on our previous superintendent, Dr. Sarah Hearn's responses in the past. Um, back in May of this year, committee members Hanson and Riley um, asked to see how specifically the needs have grown, and we have put together slides for your request, so we'll get to those in a few minutes. Um, a, a decrease in enrollment doesn't equal a decreased budget. Not every student costs the same to educate because their needs and abilities are drastically different. They're individuals. We don't have cookie-cutter students. It's not that simple. Um, the number of staff has increased. Added interventionists and the like at the elementary level can intervene earlier and sooner, meaning that they may not need a referral for support services down the line in middle or high school. It's fiscally responsible to focus on prevention in this area. Instead of one teacher, we now need a team of experienced individuals supporting our students. We are responsible for providing so much more nowadays than academics than the typical reading, writing, and arithmetic, um, just from when I was in school 20 plus years ago. <laughs> um, we're also responsible for mental health services, food insecurities, just as two examples. You know, we're mandated by the state to provide more. 
unfortunately, unfunded mandates. I know we love saying that word, but here we are, it's a, it's a truth. Uh, special education costs are also increasing. Just as an example, we recently received notice from the Operational Services Division of the State's Executive Office of Administration and Finance that our special education costs, which have risen on average of about 2% each year over the last several, are now going to be going up by 14%. Um, as an example of public schools being responsible for areas beyond academics, I'd also like to point to the latest results of the Metro West Adolescent Health Survey, which is a biennial survey of middle and high school students. Reports of serious mental health problems increased sharply since the last survey. Depressive symptoms rose from 20% in 2018 to 27% in 2021. Intentional self-injury rose from 14% to 19%. And seriously considering suicide increased from 13% to 16%. At a recent town meeting, I know our police chief spoke about the benefit of having additional social workers within their department and that they've seen a large spike in mental health calls. And I think that this highlights as a community, as a whole, we have a greater need for mental health services and these needs trickle down to our children and students. All of this data confirms that the needs of students have increased. That has to be factored into an operational budget. We have to listen to what they're telling us. Students are showing us they need more resources. We have done our best to ensure that we focus on our students who have the highest needs, to close the achievement and opportunity gaps, and to ensure fair wages for staff. We're still emerging from two years of a pandemic with learning loss, academic regression, and severe mental health challenges. We're putting resources into those areas as they are the need, needs our students have, and it is our responsibility. I'd just like to finish up by thanking everyone within the Franklin Public Schools for all they've had to do over the past several years. Um, they've done so much for our community. You know, as a mom, I'd like to thank them. They've done so much for my family. I'd like to thank our central office and our budget subcommittee for their work on pulling together our fiscally responsible budget. And now I'd like to turn it over to Superintendent Chagir. Thank you. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks. Thank you once again for having us. So our hope is uh, by the end of this, Mr. Conner, we're able to answer some of those questions and um, present just some other information important about the Franklin Public Schools that adds context to the, the presentation that we shared ahead of time. So um, you've heard uh, opening remarks. Um, as part of uh, the, the whole puzzle, um, we'll spend some time just talking through how we're funded through Chapter 70, talk through enrollment and some of our selected populations and then provide an overview of some of the other areas within our school budgets that hopefully uh, by the end um, we've shared just an overview, a, uh, a deeper dive on how we assemble our budget, what it, in, what it entails, and then um, our approach this year, and as well as some other updates and, and leave time at the end for questions as well. So before we begin, um, we wanted to talk about the major driver of our budget is really around what do we hope for our kids, right? Where just like any organization, um, we have a mission, we have a, a vision for what we want as, as a school system. And in this town, there's a, um, a high expectation, as there should be, on the education we provide to the kids in this, in this town, uh, myself included. And uh, we have a portrait of a graduate, so we developed a, a vision. And within these, um, you'll see um, the tenets below, which talk about being confident and self-aware, 
empathetic and productive citizens, curious and creative thinkers, effective communicators and collaborators, and reflective and innovative problem solvers. Those are, at this point, to you, uh, maybe just bullets on the slide, but we, we really incorporate these in how we think about where we'll deploy resources, how we'll develop our plans for our school year, and how we'll prepare students throughout, the, throughout each level of their development. Moving on, um, you heard a little bit um, from Ms. Spencer about the pandemic recovery. Um, these are areas we're still continuing to focus on. Um, we have seen um, an uptick in some of the mental health needs and supports of our students. Prior to the pandemic, we were focused on social emotional learning. Um, when I was in school, I think we called it character ed, or it's had different names along the way. Some have called them soft skills. I've heard different names, but um, ultimately, that idea um, we were working on, I think that was a, a, a huge uh, contributor to some of the way some of the ways we were able to sustain during um, some of the harder times of the pandemic. With that said, upon return, mental health is shown and manifests itself in, in different ways with kids. Um, I'm just thinking about some of the visits I've done at some of the schools as part of my transition, and, and one of the things is around resilience. That would be a pattern I've already heard around students and trying to stick with them um, in their learning um, and trying to make sure that we don't let students fall behind so that they can achieve at the highest level that we want them to and that we know they can. Um, that ties in with the academic interventions. And then also, you'll hear a little bit more about um, the continued support of technology as we get to the next slide around some of our planning. It's actually the slide after this. But. So we recognize that our kids have growing needs. And when we think about how we prepare kids, we look at not only the academic side, but we look at the behavioral side and, and social emotional side, those are two ways. So um, we have more intensive needs. You've heard that stated tonight. Um, we'll talk a little bit about that and add some statistical information to that to hopefully paint the, the full picture. We have an increase in our English language learner population that, that we provide support for across levels. And also um, we're really looking to try to support all students as we, as we continue to plan. This year we have uh, five major district initiatives. We really wanted to put together a, a solid plan. And one thing I would say is we've really worked on uh, a focus on creating tiered systems of support. You may have heard it, there's acronyms for it. MTSS is one that's um, used um, most commonly. But ultimately, what we're trying to do is establish tier one, meaning how are we educating all kids? And if we can do that at a very high level, um, we have the best shot of educating and having a system that really provides um, the absolute best education they can. Tier two, you know, in every scenario, um, students who can't um, um, at first maybe um, demonstrate mastery or understanding of a skill, we start to look at and identify who those kids are and then we um, provide support uh, in the moment to try to help support them. That's um, what I think Ms. Spencer was referring to when she talked about a team. Um, it's not just uh, one person who's doing that but trying to really make sure that we're rounding off and then getting students right back to that, that tier one level. And then tier three is for our students who uh, need more support, and then how do we structure it? So I offer that as a framework, just as we think through some of the positions that we'll talk about later in the presentation. You'll see some other um, references to that, but really, as we've come out of the pandemic, what we've realized is our systems are really an area that we wanted to focus on. Um, as we design our plan for the year, how are we establishing um, the right adults to help students across the board um, with our with our systems, and you know, and you can have a lot of goals, but if you don't have systems in line to to meet them, 
then that's just what they are, their goals. So we really tried to focus on pairing what do we want for kids and then how are we going to support that moving forward. This year, um, all of our elementary schools aligned to create uh, a common school improvement plan so that we could have a guaranteed experience uh, that's common across all of our elementary schools for students as they continue through grades. Um, also, our middle school um, did that as well. Um, we've covered that in some of our school committee meetings, but for the purposes of tonight, I just would talk about how we, um, by having common goals, we're able to really focus in on having common resources and creating initiatives that are aligned and allow us to deploy similar resources across schools for equity. Now we'll get into, we'll get into chapter 70. Thanks. Um, thanks for having us today. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about Chapter 70. I know you've heard me talk about that at every budget hearing that I've been to in the last 15 years. Um, but it is really important to um, repeat this information. It's complicated information, and I feel like the more that I can tell it, tell it to folks for your sake, for the public's sake, maybe you'll pick up or, or the public will pick up one more piece of information relative to how we're funded. So Chapter 70 is the, is the state's way of determining um, our, how much they're going to fund for our district. They start with and calculate a foundation budget, which is the amount that they think is adequate, is an adequate funding level to provide an education to the cities of Franklin. That um, this year takes into account the uh, second year of the implementation of the student opportunity. Can I interrupt? There's an echo. Maybe move them somewhere yeah that's better that better yeah, i think so yeah. okay yeah. so so the yeah, foundation budget so uh, this is the second year of the implementation of the student opportunity act which provided higher foundation rates in five areas uh low-income students for uh english learners special education benefits and fixed charges and guidance. And so they take those categories, they've increased the rates, they multiply it by the number of students we have in each of those categories, come up with an amount that they think is adequate for us to provide an education for our students. Then they decide what can Franklin afford to pay towards that amount, and then they backfill the rest with state aid. So stated a little bit differently here, is, is the actual formula that the foundation is based on an enrollment and, those, and a wage adjustment factor and inflation. From that, what, what Franklin can afford to pay is based on an aggregate wealth model, which includes wealth from property, property and income, as well as a municipal revenue growth factor. And they uh, take the difference between those two and say, we're gonna give you the rest in chapter 70 money. Now you can see by the numbers, 62 million less 44.8 million is, is not $28 million, it is $17 million. That's calculated by the formula, we should be getting $17.6 million, but in reality, we're getting $28.5 million in, um, in um, Chapter 70 money because we benefited by a spike in enrollment from the 90s when Ed Reform came into play. Um, and the state is holding us harmless. They are not going to decrease the amount of state aid they're giving us. They will only, at this point, going forward, give us a minimum aid amount of what the Student Opportunity Act um, says is $30 per pupil. Just so happens that 
last year, um, for this year's budget, minimum aid was determined by the legislature at the last hour um, to be $60 per pupil. So an additional $155,000 came into the town of Franklin. Um, so our minimum aid was $310,000. That's what came in uh, on top of our um, Chapter 70 allocated amount from last year brings us to $28.8 million in Chapter 70 money that came in for FY23. That's $11.2 million, .2 million more than we should be getting um, based on the formula. Adding back in what we're required to spend on students, that $44 million, the Chapter 70 aid we get plus what we're required to spend is going to be what our required net school spending is um, calculated at, which is $73.6 million. That's the amount we have to spend on educating students in Franklin to, to meet uh, the compliance that the state sets forth for net school spending. And you're going to see in a minute that we're spending more than that. So. Sure. Can we pause for questions or anything? Sorry, there's so much content here that I don't know if it's best. And let me know if it's helpful to save everything for the end. <laughs> I know this has got brought up in the past, and uh, maybe other members can correct me if I'm not thinking of it. In the past, we talked about we knew we were getting more Chapter 70 money based off of that spike in growth that you mentioned, but we had, I thought historically talked about could they take that away? But I think we're saying they will not take that away. Or is that, can that still happen? Oh, the state could decide to take yeah. it away. It's okay. not likely that it will happen, but, but it's still possible. Okay, so I, right, sure. so I just, I just sure. wanted to clarify that point, because I, I thought we said they couldn't drop below that, but we're saying they, they could, essentially. Because <laughs> I know that was a concern in the past, so just. Yeah, no, and I, I think it's important to note, too, that um, in New York recently, they're petitioning to um, reformulate because they realize that it's imbalanced and there are districts that need the money more than the wealthier communities. So I think it's important that we not draw too much attention that we're getting this extra money because the state reps for these other districts could make the push at the state level and we could lose this money. Okay, thank you. So, um, and I'm going to show you this also, again, in some different formats. Um, so we are a minimum aid district, as I said. Um, the impact of the Student Opportunity Act has been different among different communities. Um, it's, it's a very different impact. In Franklin, we're um, seeing some additional circuit breaker reimbursement for transportation. We're seeing uh, charge school reimbursement going into the town um, to offset some of the um, assessment. And we're seeing um, a, an increase to the local required contribution. Um, and, and here again is the 11.2 million in excess base aid that we just talked about. Um, we are second to Boston alone, who is getting $41.7 million more than the formula aid. And then there's some other districts that are listed there as well that you can see. So um, this just restates everything that I've just said. Um, our enrollment is declining. It went down 2.1% uh, from last year to this year. Uh, our foundation budget is increasing because the state says we need more money to adequately educate our students. So that went up 4.5%. Our required district contribution went up 5.5%. And our chapter 70 money only went up 1.09%. 
Um, so, so that's pretty critical information, and, and you're going to see that trend on the next slide as to our required district contribution continuing to go up over time um, until it caps at 82.5%, roughly coming in about 2028. Uh, and then just a little bit about net school spending. Um, as I said, net school spending is what we are required to spend, our local required contribution, plus what the state gives us in state aid. That's uh, what we're required to spend, and, and that was uh, roughly 73.6 million dollars. So last year we spent 8.8, sorry, I meant to say an FY21, and get me years. <laughs> We're in FY23 right now, but in FY21, we spent $8.8 .8 million more than net school spending. It's a substantial amount of money. It is 12.7% more than, um, than we are required to spend. But on average, in the state of Massachusetts, 77% of districts spend more than that. Um, in fact, they spend on average 39.3% more than net school spending. Um, so that really puts us in the, the 23rd percentile as it relates to net school spending. Um, another statistic we talk about is our per pupil cost. Uh, our in-district per pupil cost for 2021. Question. Sure. So net school spending just means we have to spend that. Net school spending is the amount that we are required to spend to comply yeah. with the law. We don't have to spend more than that, though. That's correct. You don't have to spend more than that, but we are spending roughly $9 million more than that. Most districts are spending an average of 39% more than they have to spend. Okay. The um, per pupil comparison to the state, uh, the state average is $18,556. Dollars uh, in Franklin, we're spending fifteen thousand nine hundred and eighty-two dollars per pupil. That's uh, almost fourteen percent lower than the state average. Puts us in the twenty-seventh percentile. Uh, so seventy-three percent of districts in Massachusetts spend more on education on a per pupil basis than we do in Franklin. And that's just a visual of where we are. If you, if you. Um, listed the names of all of those districts on the slide. That's where we fall. Okay, but just out of curiosity, where does Franklin fall within, say, academics compared to all these other districts that are spending with us? I'd How say many are the top? I'll let the superintendent answer that, but I'd say we're probably pretty close to the top. No, we're, so, we're a successful district in many ways. Um, okay. On the, yeah, it's a, it's a longer answer. But I think I, it's I figured, not, but yeah, it's, it's, it's not, not. I understand numbers, and you can make them say what you want to say a lot of the time. But if you're achieving your goals and you're not needing to spend as much as others, even though they're spending more, what difference does it make? I think it's on the backs of a lot of people who are stretched pretty thin to do what they need to do with the resources that we have, and we do the best we can and put the best laid plans. We have great teachers and leaders and supports that you hear about today that are mm -hmm. part of that success. So I think I would, um, that would be my short answer for the purposes of it, but I'm happy to expand on that really. Okay, great, thanks. I have a quick question to all on spending. If we went to the, the state average, which is, is it on the 44 million or the 70? All right, we, we spend $70 million, which includes the state aid, the chapter seven. So. 
if we were to go meet the state average of 18.5, it's if it's at the 24 million dollar range, that's another about seven million dollars more. If it's at the 70 range, it's at seven, almost 10 million dollars more. Could you find a way to spend that money? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> the sunrise in the east? I mean, where, sure. where is, is if, it, if we you can I, 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 I believe that, um, I believe that if, if um, I calculated this a couple of years ago in a presentation, and um, it was close to $81 million if we were just average, just on, uh, uh, um, based on the state average, maybe three or, three or four years ago. Um, and it brought our budget up to $81 million. Uh, and, and there were um, lots of opportunities that we could come up with, like um, having an elementary foreign language program for one quick example. Um, we don't teach uh, foreign language at the elementary level. It's something that we had many years ago, but we don't anymore. It's one of the reductions we've made over time. We uh, eliminated librarians. Don't have we have one librarian in the district um, that might be something. So so could we spend an extra eleven million? Sure. My point, I guess, is we're, we're I would consider us a high-performing district mm -hmm. based on everything I've read over the last two weeks. It would, it would almost seem like it's throwing money away to to strive to get to that number. And, and I I think those numbers are a little suspect anyway when you have problems down in Cambridge and those people spending $40,000 stupid. So, I was just curious, what, what would we ever do uh, prudently with 10 or $12 million more? Well, the, and the second question to that is, what does that increase us with? Are we going to rise up in state rankings? Are we going to better SATs, or are students going to be happier? Yeah, the other side of that is, is if you don't reach that, and I'm, I'm guessing the average is not in, in, in memorialized in law or anything, it's a it's goal. If you don't get it, get to it in some form or other, is there a penalty? And I'll go back, I've used the thing Years ago, not years ago, not so long ago, the library had to spend, uh, I forget the number, million dollars, plus or minus. If we didn't get to the state requirement, then they, they snapped accreditation. We got there, and it, it works. Is there anything, is there a penalty, a true either dollar and cents, educational or whatever penalty for not getting to a certain number unknown? And that may be just a hypothetical question right now. Nope, it's you know, true. Yeah, is there a penalty? Yes, yes, there is. is. If you if you do not meet net school spending, if you fall below 95% of net school my, spending. I, that's not my question. Well, because if we go to, go to um, the state average, let's say, Okay. The numbers I kind of did in my head if we were to get to the state average. If we don't get to this quote state average, is there a penalty? 
I'm not talking about anything but the state average. Other state than, average is just other than that we're on a, on a track. So the, the only penalty now is if we don't make the uh, NSS. If you don't meet the school spending, there is okay. nothing. That's so yeah, there's no penalty. Yeah. Okay. And I think too, just which I think is what you were getting at, Michael, too, is yeah, we're below it, but how efficiently are we spending the money? Like maybe right, I think and that's where we talk about meeting our goals and so on paper it looks well this town's spending it more. Well they could be spending it much more foolishly than we are, right? So I think we just have to keep that in mind when we when we look at the per people, because I know we we tend to go towards that and I myself have a whole list of questions on per people, but um, I think that's important is just how efficiently are those funds being spent when you got it district to district. So this is just a summary of our um, of our current budget, uh, seventy million two hundred and twenty thousand eight hundred and twenty-five dollars. Uh, as you can see, the majority is spent on salaries, um, with healthcare um, being the second largest bucket. Um, Five percent on out of district tuition, four and a quarter percent on other expenses, three and a half percent on transportation. And then um, just a summary of our revolving account balances. At June 30th, we had about $7.5 million in revolving accounts. Revolving accounts are accounts that are fee-based. Their um, uh, revenue comes in from specific fees like transportation, like athletic fees, like fees for extracurricular activities, uh, fees for preschool tuition. Those go into a revolving um, fund and um, uh, they are used to offset the expenses in those categories. Uh, our budgeted use for FY23 is $5.5 million. Our projected receipts uh, for FY23 are 4.7, so we're anticipating the projected balance in our revolving accounts at year end to be roughly $6.7 million. It's about 10% um, of our total budget. Interrupt you again, I'm sorry. Revolving accounts is a call and a pet peeve. I, it's mostly, well, let's take athletics or buses. It's obvious that we're, because the numbers say so, that we're charging more than we should be, or we shouldn't. If we're charging what the expense is, then we should end up with a zero balance at the end of the year. There shouldn't be carryover anything. And yet, we're going to have $6.7 million, which is, I don't know, the percentages of, I, I, how do you come up with, or how do you justify charging? I'll give you an example. I had a niece who lived at 110 Union Street, which is not a bad one but a pretty good walk to the high school. They had to pay for the bus to go from 110 Union Street to the high school. Yeah, they, they were the last house, I think. And the number was like $300. Is that what a bus ride for a student costs to go from 110 Union to 218 Oak Street? And if it isn't, how do we, I mean, in effect, it looks to me like taxation without representation. 
We're taking money, but we spend it next year. Right? We, some of that money that we collect gets spent next year, not this year. Not to cover this year's expenses. So in effect, a graduating senior from high school who pays a bus fee paid for his friend, who's a junior, the next year. And I guess, I guess it just, it just doesn't seem fair to me. And whether fair is a legitimate thing in this discussion, I don't know. But how do we come up with the fee? For instance, what is a fee now for a bus? For a typical, I mean, the bus contract is only, I think if my numbers, my memory serves, it's around two and a half minutes, plus or minus, three, I don't know. I'm doing it from memory. Can I add some points onto that? Because I think, so this year, right, if you just do your budgeted reuse versus your projected receipts, oh, you're actually down. You're spending more, so like you're eating away at that excess. I guess, what's the process for? Do you look at some point and say, FY23, what did I collect for bus, what did I spend for bus, how do we need to adjust our bus fee? And then, how does that roll into the next year, but how do we possibly get $7.5 million off? I think that's the biggest discrepancy, is like, fine, you're floating around half a million, fine. Like, that's your that's your kind of cushion. But I think the, the issue is that it ballooned so much. Right, so um, first I'll tell you that the school committee's philosophy, philosophy since I've been here for 15 years has been keeping a year of, of revolving accounts in the bank. That was based from a forensic audit that was done close to 15 years ago that, that indicated um, that when you're spending money as it comes in, you have, you have to make um, adjustments during the course of that um, school year if your revenue projections are off. Um, so at that point in time, the auditors uh, who, who completed the forensic audit indicated that the, the philosophy of keeping that one year in the bank. Okay, so that's why the transportation money that we take in this year does in fact go towards next year's expenses. We take in $360 per pupil. That's, an that's, that's um, for fees that parents can choose to pay or can choose to transport their child to school in some other fashion. We don't require parents to pay for busing other than those who are living within the two mile mark or in grades seven through 12. Um, K through six within two miles. Um, secondly, it costs roughly $760 per pupil to transport a student on a big yellow bus. The contract is about a million five. Um, we're also transporting students in vans. We don't tr charge students to be transported in vans to specialized programs. Um, the uh, revolving account for transportation offsets the cost of transportation and, and is used for that cost. And um, I, we will um, be as fiscally responsible as we can to utilize that money. Part of that $7.5 million that you're seeing there is one year in the bank for a circuit breaker reimbursement. So for those of you who might not be familiar with circuit breaker, um, circuit breaker is a reimbursement that comes from the state to cover the costs of extraordinary um, tuition for out-of-district placement costs. So you heard Ms. Spencer talk about the operational services division uh, increasing costs next year for 14, by 14% for private specialized uh, special education placements. 
So the state also reimburses a portion of that cost in, in circuit breaker. So this year our circuit breaker is uh, roughly $3.1 million of that $7.5 million. Um, so, so keeping one year in the bank um, is, has always been the philosophy since I've been here. Um, I will say that we have a little bit more than one year in the bank in some accounts. Um, and we are um, being fiscally conservative about how we spend it, and you'll see that later on as we um, start to talk about how we're going to build our FY24 budget so that we can um, uh, be fiscally responsible with the funds that we have. And we're also going to talk uh, about some of the grant funding that we have that can support our budget as well. Strangely enough, if that was in the regular budget, or is it? I remember there's a line at the bottom. Some no, so no, it's not the the revolving the, the revolving counts are completely within the school department's jurisdiction to spend out. So not the forty-four million that we contribute doesn't include the exactly, service. exactly. I think as the slide said, it's like ten or eleven percent. Oh, there is ten point eight percent of the overall budget. So if you go back to that pie, however they're spending that money is distributed throughout the different. So years. strangely enough, if we put it in the budget and collected it, and I'm going to say through taxes or whatever, that would raise our, our that raise that 18 number that we're aiming at, would go up, we'd go closer to it, wouldn't we? If we paid for the buses through the regular budget, and I understand that's all kinds of different, I'm just blue sky. Ultimately, at the end of the day, I believe that that's just shell moving. You know, it's just kind of moving shells around, shuffling chairs to shuffle chairs. Because ultimately, their final budget, at whatever it is, seventy-three million, includes that. You know, seven million, so give or take. It is in the. It's in their. It's in their budget proposal. Right. It's in their budget proposal, so it's kind of off the town. If you were to do it that way, you'd have to have it on the chair on the revenue sheet. It would be other votes, you know, whatever that's called, would be line item at the bottom. But you'd just be increasing the town budget, you know, say seven million, and plump, plopping in the seven million from that. So it's really six one half dozen the other. It just makes it easier to actually not have it. Sometimes you have to think out of the box. Okay, go go for it. Let's continue. <laughs> so. Um, this is your question of the day, Mr. Conley. <laughs> so the blue bars that you see represent the number of students in our district that in FY09 was roughly uh, 6,100 or so. Uh, and in FY23 uh, is roughly uh, 47, in fact, 4,725 uh, 4, uh, students. The, um, fatter, jagged, gray line uh, indicates the number of members in our FEA Unit A. That what is, there's a Unit A and yep, Unit B? Yep, there's a Unit A and there's a Unit B and there's plenty of other staff that are outside of units. But our Unit A members are our teachers, our, our um, gen ed teachers, special educators, occupational therapists, speech therapists, physical therapists, digital learning integrationists, counselors, school psychologists, they are all um, unit A members. So while you see that trend line is in fact increasing um, in the teaching in the FEA staff members, uh, the enrollment for students is going down. 
The differential you'll see on the next slide is this is our classroom teachers, okay? Our classrooms, our students, again, the blue bars, um, you can see that our that gray line, which identifies the number of classroom teachers, has in fact kept up with the decline in student enrollment. The differential is, is those other ser related service providers that you're going to see in a minute um, and how they've changed over time. So we might have eliminated some classroom teachers based on enrollment, but we've added a counselor here and there and nurses and um, psychologists special and education. other special educators. Uh, and so this is, at the this is at the elementary level. This is at the elementary level. 19.4 is your average class size. No, no. My, my question is, you. This gray bar just represents classroom teachers. At the elementary level. At the elementary level. You right. added those other ones that you're speaking at at the elementary level. At all levels. All of those other related service providers and special education. What that looks like. We can, I don't have one here tonight, but we can certainly put that together at the elementary level, at the secondary level. Um, the, the next slide shows you the same data at the middle school level, um, where our enrollment has kept up. Our, our number of classroom teachers at the middle school level has kept up with our middle school classroom enrollment, and the average class size is 19.9 this year. Uh, and, the, and the reasoning behind some of those added positions is because of the selected population enrollment that we're about to talk about. So this yellow bar that you see on this table indicates um, our enrollment um, in the 90s. Sorry? Is there a high school graph? Um, there's not a high school graph. High school, um, the classrooms with, with um, the block scheduling way, the way, um, it is the number of classroom teachers, the average classroom size, I would say, is probably in the same range, with some classes being higher than 19 and a half and some lower, but it's, 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 harder, it's harder for me to quantify that way. Like students in an elementary are assigned to an elementary teacher, and in the middle school you have teams. At high school, you might remember, when you rotate through, so you can get an average of class sizes. Um, but it's not as clean as some of the graphs that we show. But that's something that we can we can look to try to represent. I mean, even if you just do it simple, students, mm -hmm. classroom teachers, others. Yep. Sure. Um, so who determines high needs and what is high needs? <laughs> the link at the bottom actually leads to that. The DESE has determined. You'll notice um, the hashtags. <clears throat> Um, I'm sorry, the NAs, where there wasn't um, even a category um, considered in the 90s for high needs and, and even in the early 2000s. So, okay, so, so they, they determine the, the department. What, what criteria creates a high needs person. Right. So, so 93, 94 is when ed reform came into play. We had um, just under 4,000 students at that point in time. 2008-2009 was when our highest enrollment peak occurred. Um, and you can see those different categories um, of, of students. Um, and in 21-22, just last year, our total enrollment was 4,764 4, students. 
but you know, just for an example, students with disabilities at 506 in the 90s and now up to 892, low income students at 190 in 93, 94, and now up to 704. Um, so our population has certainly changed over the years. On that low low income, what de what determines that as well? And it, uh, what are the additional expenses generally that we need to support them? Uh, so there are there are federal poverty guidelines that um, there's a percentage that the department um, quantifies as as low income students um, on, a, on an annual basis, um, and in terms of um, other expenses that we would need to support, you know, I'm sure you can see some of the statistics about students coming from poverty and, and their um, academic performance and, and other uh, trauma. Um, so, so there are additional services that, that might be required um, to support them. Certainly, um, you know, we support them with reduced meals, um, that kind of thing. Does a lot of that excess or increased cost for low-income housing, low-income students, do we get extra funding from the state for that? So is it, is it or I guess also to add on to that, do we get extra funding, is it dollar for dollar? I'm assuming it's not, but how close to dollar for dollar is it? Like, are we feeling that impact of, as that population grows, are we feeling that? It's, it's yes, but just curious your thoughts on how that reconciles with what we get at the state funding. Yeah, so, so the Student Opportunity Act, that was one of the categories that they increased the rate for because they knew that they weren't keeping up with the rate um, and the expenses that, that we were um, needing to spend on low-income students. Um, and, and so the rate was adjusted in the Student Opportunity so that basically increased the foundation and said, hey, uh, this is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you it's going to cost you more to provide an, uh, uh, an adequate education, or here's an adequate amount to provide an education, and it's going to be higher. But because we're a minimum aid district, we're not going to get any more than that thirty dollars per pupil. We're just going to have to contribute more of that that percentage that's going up to eighty two and a half percent. We're just going to have to contribute more. So the foundation's going to go up, but Franklin, as a community, um, the state has said we can afford more to pay to pay more. Um, so we we'll just be contributing more over time. Yeah. So if we want to maintain if I can too just through the chair um, to address committee member Hansen's comment um, you had mentioned the free and reduced uh, meals but it's not just that it, it also helps determine if a family needs to pay for their bus cost or Chromebook insurance or sports fees after school fees um, there's a lot of things that you know families can qualify for um, through filling out some paperwork. So it really does kind of help a lot of the, uh, a lot of our students. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Good point. So so here's um, the background that I talked about a few minutes ago on our specialized positions. Um, although we're continuing to support fewer students that have greater needs, and they're supporting with additional special educators which you can see in the past six years have gone from 81 to 99.4 um, special educators in terms of FTE. Our school adjustment counselors from 7.2 to up to 20 adjustment counselors. Uh, and our nurses um, from 11 to 16. What's the school adjustment counselor? 
to, to uh, basically a, a licensed counselor in the DESC that helps students navigate the school day, works with the, them to support mental health, um, meets with students and families to bring um, them together to, in support of kids on a variety of issues related to school in some capacity. Um, but ultimately, they're there to support the, the mental health and behavioral needs of kids um, across the district, and, and they exist at all levels. Thank you. You're welcome. So just to um, follow up on that, if you look at this, we talked a little bit about the, the types of roles we have in the building. So as we talked a little bit about classroom teachers and how we've um, really tried to be responsible and keeping up with our enrollment when it comes to classroom, the question, once again, uh, Mr. Conley poses around some of these other areas that fill out the needs of a kid um, throughout a school day are um, where some of our resources have shifted over time. So you'll see on here, school adjustment, you'll see reading specialists, um, some of our related service providers, so our occupational therapists, right, our physical therapists, um, curriculum. You know, our, we're an academic institution. Learning's our, our primary focus, and um, teaching and learning is, is really what we're people, uh, what we need to be doing is supporting our teachers in that to provide that best, the best education we can. You'll also see some other um, components in there um, around um, school psychologists, and um, our curriculum specialists include math and literacy specialists at our elementary level, um, reading at the middle, and then as we get into the high school, we, have, um, we also have our department heads and directors across the board to help support programming and teaching and learning. And also our EL, um, which is our English language learners or our multilingual um, teachers to support a growing population in Franklin across the board at all levels. So this is just, I talked about this earlier. I'll, I'll be succinct on this. But ultimately, um, this is just a visual to talk through those tiers that we mentioned. So um, really, tier one is when we think about the classroom teacher, you know, how are they preparing and teaching students? As you get into tier two, um, it could be um, other supports that are available to kids. Um, these aren't labeled by role, so you're not a teacher who's a tier two teacher necessarily. But um, if you're supporting kids, our, our English language learner teachers are actually helping in the first tier. How are we preparing lessons for students so that they can acquire and they have the language objectives in addition to the learning objectives, for example, um, that are occurring? And those are some of the supports that um, folks may wonder about. Or I, you know, I've been asked about what does an English language learner teacher do? They're supporting someone um, who's learning the language while they're in classes with their peers being educated. They're providing the pre-teaching, re-teaching, and whatnot. So. That's an example. Special education, I would apply the same pieces around pre-teaching pre, uh, pre and reteaching, and providing support and helping um, partnering with classroom teachers to prepare lessons to account for the kids that are in front of them on that day. This is just another example. It's a, it's a dental analogy. So we all know that we all go to school, uh, we all go to the dentist and we have cleanings and checkups. Right, and that's just something that occurs all the time. If you have a cavity or you need braces, um, you, you go get braces, but you don't stop having your teeth cleaned over time. So when we start to think about these models, it's everyone's getting the instruction they need across the board, all kids. And if someone needed something else, we would look to provide that, but then get them back to, ultimately you only want people to have to have their teeth cleaned for that in a perfect world, but we know that that's not always the case. So. This model represents, and then the root canal is obviously like a deeper, more intensive intervention. 
but even with a root canal, you should still be cleaning your teeth and having that done. So this is just an example of that model of how we try to look at when we're educating kids. And there's a lot of people involved to make that model work. Do you have any information around how many people were using those services and have gotten off of them? Yes, actually, I'm glad you asked that question. Um, we uh, just instituted a new program called Panorama. I talked about systems earlier, if you remember when we were talking about goal set. So what it does is we now have um, excellent data on um, that we're gathering around pre and post, basically. So we have what's called, I don't want to use another acronym, I apologize. Um, it's called MAP testing, where it's an academic test where we can look and see where kids are at. Then in addition, teachers are teaching and they're identifying where kids are at. And then we have um, folks who work in our building that are interventionists at the elementary level. So during a common block, they can identify where a kid needs help in a specific skill, pull groups that have a common, if we all had a common area where we struggled in math on a concept, they can pull those students who have a common need, teach, get them back. And I think that ties into when you hear like pandemic recovery mm -hmm. teaching, we're really thinking about let's not just start kids over Let's, let's continue to teach, but then find out where kids need help. And all of that's part of that system and that structure where we're trying to make sure we're wrapping, um, we're designing our organization to meet those needs while still being fiscally responsible and thinking about enrollment and, and the, 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 the adults we, we truly need in front of our kids. So. So when we talk about coronavirus relief funding, I'm going to give you some um, information as to where we are at this point for with our federal grants. Um, this is the timeline for spending those federal grants. We are in the middle of fiscal year 23, where that big red arrow is. Um, our ESSER um, money for ESSER three is mostly what is still available to us to spend up through the end of June, uh, September 2024. Um, we are currently just finishing up spending our ESSER two money. So um, we've already spent our CVRF money in FY21. We spent our FY22, uh, our ESSER one money in FY22. You can see the things um, that are listed there uh, and what we spent that money on. Um, for for ESSER two, um, as of as of November thirtieth, as of tomorrow, that money will be all, will all be spent um, because we're issuing payroll tomorrow. <coughs> so that money will be spent tomorrow uh, on those items that you see. And the ESSER three money is what we still have, uh, roughly nine hundred and eight thousand dollars left in ESSER three. Uh, that we are planning to continue to use it to spend on a counselor for the Bridge for Resilient Youth in Transition program, uh, plus an, um, some support power for support professionals for that program, um, continued support for interventionists, uh, funding for interventionists. Our diversity, equity, and inclusion director is funded out of ESSER three money social worker in that grant and we are going to be providing some after school tutoring at the secondary level uh, using ESSER 3 money. Can I ask a question on that? Mm -hmm. So what happens with these things when this fund, these funds are gone? Yeah, so, so we are going to make some decisions as to whether those positions, how those positions can be incorporated into our budget um, or which positions um, as we do on an annual basis 
look at all of our staffing and our positions and make enrollment-driven staff decisions um, as to how we're going to meet our budget allocation. So while there are some additional positions that you see funded by federal grants, um, we, would, we would make those decisions and either roll them in or um, make some decisions about um, our staffing at that point. Got it. And do the people who like, so for example, the DEI director, do they know they're hired under this funding? Absolutely not. Right. Thank you. We also have other federal funds that people don't, do know that they're um, funded under. Um, this is just a summary of our ESSER, our ESSER funding because that is the topic of the, of the day. Um, what does ESSER stand for? Um, elementary and secondary. Okay. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Not at the top no. of me. Tip of my tongue, but I will tell you that ARP on the next slide, ARPA money, that's the American Rescue Plan. Okay. <laughs> uh, that's, that's, that's the second set of funding that um, schools and towns have received. Um, our ARPA money uh, that we have right now remaining is uh, roughly $162,000, $163,000 between both of these. Uh, school age and preschool uh, grants, and you can see the, the items that we're spending <coughs> on that money on, um, again, used um, through the 2024 fiscal year, so through the end of um, probably September, but we'll probably have it spent by the end of June of next year. Um, and so to your, to your question, Ms. Riley, um, as we look to, to strategize in, uh, in, in terms of FY24 budget development, we would look at all of our student enrollment trends and staff accordingly. We would be fiscally responsible in terms of how we're going to use our grant and revolving funds. Um, uh, as we do every year, reviewing all of our faculty and staff positions, and, uh, and we will also consider the impact of uh, the redistricting analysis outcomes that we are in the process of talking about. This is just a timeline of events. As, as you may know, um, Franklin Public Schools is in the process of conducting a redistricting analysis. Um, we've uh, basically, to walk through this timeline, we had a space needs uh, facilities assessment subcommittee, which was comprised of school committee members, uh, myself, and Ms. Goodman, and basically determined that the recommendation was we needed to analyze our spaces and look at our uh, look at our schools and make some decisions on where uh, students are laid out within the town, what makes the most sense, what's the most efficient, where can we have some efficiencies. So we hired a company, as you can see here, called Applied Geographics, has worked a ton in Massachusetts with schools to conduct this type of analysis and lead uh, communities through this process. We had a kickoff meeting in November. We also um, have had working group meetings with a smaller group in the company to get the data they need to help us, um, and we continue to do that. And ultimately, um, we have another meeting before the um, holiday break, the winter break, and uh, we'll continue through the winter um, with the uh, the end goal of this year is to propose scenarios to school committee um, for them to vote. The final decision on any type of redistricting is, is that of the school committee, but we're facilitating this through um, multiple opportunities for our community. We have a redistricting advisory committee comprised of stakeholders, um, families, um, community members on that committee, a small group as a steering committee, 
but then ultimately there will be some public forums as well to engage our community further. We have a website um, that's going online with more information. We'll continue to share that out. But that's basically the process, and we hope um, by April to arrive at some decisions around that um, that will lead to recommendations for future years. I have a question. Sure. Um, one of the other things I did read was the old, the entire report on, I forget who did it, the one that recommended the Davis there go away. Mm -hmm. Kessel recommended that Comet to go away. When you redistrict, are you redistricting to the existing buildings, or is, is part of the redistricting to look at that that study also? Because it would seem to make sense to look at that study. And I understand those kind of, just saying it is a hot button. Um, so, whatever it is, it would seem to make sense when you're redistricting anyway that we go back and look at what they said shouldn't be here anymore. So, through the chair, um, we are in the very, still very early stages of this entire process. Um, the facilities analysis that we did do in the previous um, for Davis Thayer, we will use that information um, as part of um, any of our research. But right now, it's far too early. We haven't conducted. But it will be an element. It could be, yes. Could. It could be. Anything could be an element. It's all up in the air right now. I would just say examining space short-term and long-term, because you need to be thinking. So the idea of examining our teachable spaces across our town and looking at what we have available, plus our enrollment, plus all those factors. Yep. That report is a piece. There's um, specialized programs to consider. There's an early childhood center. All of these are different factors that need to be considered as you conduct a, an analysis. Mm -hmm. So. And I guess it's part of that little has one of my questions here. So. Um, I guess, and maybe you're trying to get at this too, when AppGeo provides their analysis, and I am part of that committee, thank you, it's been great so far. <laughs> um, so they're going, and how I understood it, is they're going to essentially look at our map, right, and they're gonna draw lines, and they do their whole thing, right? Um, will we ultimately, and George, correct me if this is maybe what you're thinking, um, get a version of, okay, this is the, these are the proposals if we, don't factor in that prior, that prior analysis. And these are the proposals if we do go down that road. Like, will we be able to see, will those two views be considered? Or is it even before that that we would say, no, we know is we know we, that closing, whether it be one or two schools, whatever it is, is off the table. Like, where does that decision come into play or get considered as far as then when we're actually evaluating what the school committee will vote on? Does that make sense? It does make sense, um, and, and thank you for being part of the. Might be oversimplified. No, <laughs> and thank you for being part of the advisory committee. Um, they could present several options, and at the advisory committee, it could come to the full school committee, and we could essentially vote down all of them and create one by ourselves. Um, you know, you can't. I know there's so many different avenues that we could go down it's it's so early I mean we could just make up 
so many different scenarios in our head right now. Um, and that's a good point too. Does it come down to? Because I, I want to say when well, they when you did the original study, I thought it was you had to get to a certain point of were the middle schoolers being out yes. into the high. There's a point where you can actually close schools without overburdening the schools. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, could it be just that that yeah, right now we're going to shoot down all ideas, we do nothing, and then call it throw numbers out there. Three years, then we're evaluating. The buildings, right? Well, and, it, and it also said, you know, hey, you should build a new middle school. Right. So, I mean, there, it, there's just so much, you know, right. it's right. so early to tell. And, and it does ultimately come down to the school committee, as you know. And if they do, if we do go down a road, and I've gotten this question from various, um, various people, what is the time for, like, say, like, hypothetically, we're looking to that's still on the table. That's, There's no it's, like it's, it's dependent on the scenario. Yep. Okay. It's really, and I think, I think we're trying to be, as you can imagine, we're trying to be cautious because an analysis. If we were to start jumping to, um, and I don't, I'm not suggesting you're any of you are asking yeah. us to do that, but it, it's, um, it's, it's not just the hot button, Mr. Conley, but it's also, it would be um, getting ahead of the process that needs to unfold. Um, Open, already, public, transparent process. Yeah, that so we're trying to do. Yeah. appreciate the question, but certainly we're not so prepared to answer. Has, okay. Yeah. Sure. I mean, I've even had people. Yeah. We're talking for next year. Like, how soon is this happening? Um, just to chime in too much on this, because I didn't know about the previous report. So, as someone from the outside, I think I feel like I would want it. Like, we paid for that, right? Like, we mm -hmm. paid probably good money to have like very intelligent people put it together. So, I think however it is used, Probably, and I don't know how this works, I feel like it needs to be considered, and if it gets discarded, it just needs to be kind of like documented, because mm -hmm. I think uh, yep. like people from the outside would be like, well, I'd be like, all right, so you're gonna pay money this time, you're gonna ignore them in three years when you hire somebody outside. I think just from an outsider perspective, I think kind of that documentation or communication throughout the process would be helpful. Of course. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I guess I just, you know, because I manage the facilities department, I guess I would be curious as to why wouldn't we Castle Booz study. In Castle Booz's case, they've worked with the town for decades. Uh, not trying to put you on a hot spot. And I also and I also do respect, like, you know, I'm in charge of a lot of processes, a lot of studies. Like it, it, redistricting is definitely in the top ten of one of the things that like is one of the most least desirable things a school committee member approaches when they go on this committee. That's widespread, it's emotional. Um, Closing schools is easily in the top 10 of issues that, you know, the death of a firefighter or a police officer wanted to do. There's a list that town managers superintendents would put up there. I think closing schools is one of the most vulnerable positions you can be in. If you read the Globe or newspaper, look at where Boston's at. They're in the exact same position, right? It's not a shock that number one and number two are the whole harmless communities in Massachusetts, is Boston and Massachusetts. And Mayor Wu has to deal with exactly the same issues. Superintendent Skipper have to deal with exactly the same issues that we're dealing with here. It's very vulnerable. It's a loss of a huge asset and a huge thing for a community. Um, and but I guess I'd be curious to hear why wouldn't we use the Castle Blue study from two years ago? Um, it was expensive. <laughs> Thank you, Natalie. Um, and um, you know it can put you to sleep. Uh, obviously not George. Um, there's a lot of data in it. I know there's a refresh, but why wouldn't you? Oh no, I. Oh, go ahead. Oh, good. I don't no, want to... I just. I don't want to say. 
the school committee is going to do XYZ because I don't want to speak for, sure. for the committee. I don't want to say what what we're going to do in April because it hasn't come up. I'm just I'm, I'm uncomfortable saying yes to anything. Did that report something that that just <laughs> Yeah, like I mean questions, no more questions. But I mean in all earnest, like I think I would just make the plea that, you know, Mike D'Angelo has been with the town for twenty five years. He's built virtually every single structure in this in this town. Mm -hmm. With the exception of the police station, every other facility, including every school, has had the Mike D'Angelo part um, for you know, twenty five years. Um, and I think that you know, not only Mike's expertise, and I know he's on the committee and appreciate his appointment to that, but using, um, you know, those previous studies, I would just encourage the school committee and the, the subcommittee, I forget the name of the facilities use subcommittee, I think it is, um, to really dig into that and take a look at that. And at a minimum, just to compare and contrast, even if you didn't use some of the data, what in two years changed, right? And I think Lucas just brought up a minute ago, space needs, of what a student needs today might be a little different than a couple years ago versus the future, right? The next 10 I'm years. I'm glad you brought it up, and I, I just would say, for the record, just so that we're clear, um, we're not saying that that's not um, being a part of a conversation or a study, or FGO having that information. Mm -hmm. That's certainly not withheld, and that's um, that's one piece. The other thing I would say is that, that study, there are some pieces to it that I think would be important for like us all to know, we have specialized programs that exist in our building. Those are like in-district programs. That's not accounted for as part of that. So there's, your point, uh, Jamie, around a refresh and making sure that we have very accurate information of how we're utilizing each building. And I think I would step it back again for everyone and say, we have to look at our teachable spaces as part of the whole big picture and, and, and do a full, full analysis. So. Um, I just would want to point that out as how we look at space and how it's being utilized for all the kids' needs that we have. So, and and I think through Chairman Nicole's point earlier, part of that same part that Lucas just spoke to is about where are the investments in the future? You know, holding on, and you're seeing this in Boston, right? Um, holding on to the neighborhood fabric in a sense is almost is almost prohibiting that from investing in other areas, which is putting districts at a competitive disadvantage. We know arts and culture and foreign language are a competitive disadvantage for this district versus where other students go. Um, and so by holding on to a footprint that electricity costs, <laughs> you know, things that we're mentioning, right? Like um, uh, in terms of the, the classroom size ratio, George, I'm sorry, the 40, Students per classroom in your generation is not going to be the standard anymore. And you don't but, have systematic <laughs> right? <laughs> but you know, but also, like, are are those dollars being invested in the right place? Because a lot of people can get, and you're seeing this again in Boston. If you read a lot of it, it's fascinating stuff, and it's very sad for somebody who worked in Boston like myself for a while. You know, there is that loss that people really feel. But on the same end, they're missing opportunity when they say they're underfunding their schools in Boston. They almost were a receivership, which you know might have been better for them, but that's a whole separate conversation. You know, they may be cutting off you know programmatic elements that students could be using for the future because we're holding on so dearly to something that of a time that didn't exist. And I think the the chart that Miriam put up earlier of the student enrollment, I mean, really, this is a big factor. It's just simply the town grew for 30 years at a rate that was so unprecedented. And at the end of the day, there is never going to be in the next, in our lifetimes, 
There is never going to be an enrollment back up at 6,500 students. It's just not going to happen. Birth rates, sociology, other things that go on in the world that we don't want to get into, it's just a reality. And so I think, um, you know, I hope that that stuff is also part of the analysis about possibly some of the other opportunities lost about other investments in the educational system that students may need, including some of the cost drivers that we're talking tonight. We're very famous in Franklin, very proud, and I know everybody here believes this about our special education services. I mean, they're almost like the GOAT, they're legendary, people talk about it all the time. You know, are there other opportunities that are lost because we're just simply holding on to something we can't, we, we can't do? So I hope a lot of that gets baked into the, to the analysis as one and, um, you know, as, as the school Thanks, Patrick. Yeah. And just on that point, too, I think in your, just to reiterate, that will be critical when we're thinking about community feedback because I am a parent, I have a second grader and an incoming kindergartner, and for me, if you're telling me in fourth grade my child has to start a new school, I can probably swallow that a little bit easier if I know in seventh and eighth grade she's gonna get an even better education. So I think, because I do think the community is going to react, right? They're of course expecting that, as they are, they are reacting. Um, but I think, to that point, making the linkage of, you know, Yes, it's not going to be, we don't want that change, it's emotional, but what you'll gain over the long term, both financially, I think we focus on that a lot, right? And that's an integral part of it. What does it like 10 years from now, if we make this hard decision now, that that's a critical link that I think we'll have to make with um, with the community as we, as we seek their feedback in that February, March time frame. And Nicole, just if I can, um, like you just mentioned, you know, the community already is kind of glomming on. So that's just what I really wanted to kind of stress is that I don't want anyone coming away tonight thinking that any decisions have been made at all regarding the district. I think this is all still very new. We're in step one. You know, I'm, I'm on my kids way back there listening hopefully to, you know, kid-friendly stuff back in the back. So, so, I, so I get it. <laughs> I understand. Yeah. Out of respect for everybody involved and impacted. Open, transparent process. Just to put it in perspective, my brother-in-law used to sort eggs for Gerald Hammond. So, um, that's true. When wow. Wow. This farm was at with 495. Yeah. They, they raised Hammond to Reds. My grandfather used to buy those. Rhode Island Reds. <laughs> Rhode Island Reds. And my brother-in-law used to sort the eggs. So. I learned something new. <laughs> nothing to do with anything. <laughs> <laughs> Good story time. Yeah. Alright. Um, we're close to the end, right? My grandfather's a chicken farmer in Columbia, and he used to buy those chickens to sell the eggs. So he was benefiting from his department of Look at that. Breed. So, okay. Full, cir full circle. Full circle. <laughs> yeah. uh, this is a given overview of the process. So just wrapping it up, um, these are just some proposed steps for the FY24 budget building process. School committee has already had their budget workshop. Um, we had a um, budget uh, presentation, well, tonight to the FinCom. That's where we are, December 7th. Um, you have to see us again in April. Yep, we will. Right. We will we see you again in April, May. Um, and, and you can see the timeline where we are in between working with our um, central office and building principals um, to put together budget as well as the town administrator and uh, finance staff. Superintendent's recommended budget is uh, expected to come out uh, on March 14th.
Franklin at 80,587, and finally King Philip at 79,104. So we need to retain our excellent teachers and our staff, and it is difficult to fill the vacancies that we outlined in an email um, with quality staff when we, they can go elsewhere and make more. You know, we're having a hard time finding a physics teacher. You know, we had someone interested and then they gave up because they found somewhere else that would pay them more. Um, and finally, the, the negotiated contract is a total package for which we added critical support for our students in some of the language. It was the right thing to do by educators and our students. We knew it would not be universally supported or popular. That being said, I'm disappointed in the narrative that is being set up, which doesn't need to be there. And now departments are pit against one another. The expectation that all employees get the same wage adjustment is contrary to the premise that each unit needs to be bargained with independently and in good faith. So I don't know if you have anything to add on that. I just would add, um, in the, in the state of our our industry in education, um, it's certainly been um, a, a challenge across the, the state, across the country, to, to retain teachers. Um, I think having competitive salaries um, has, has been able, we've been able to, I think, um, limit, mitigate the the uh, influx we might have we might have seen. Um, and um, as Ms. Spencer mentioned, um, there was a package that was negotiated and included. Um, our advisory program, which we, we needed desperately to uh, help all of our students get um, a common experience around um, all the things that can't be taught necessarily during the content of the day, but the idea around bullying, harassment, um, um, social-emotional learning, all the pieces that we want kids to be learning about and understanding um, to build in. The other thing is, is we've incorporated to having our um, department heads and directors part of the evaluation process. Um, when you think about a high school, for example, having 125 staff and you have four administrators to oversee the teaching and learning and um, responsibilities of all the staff, um, we've now been able to incorporate that into the to the to the contract. So um, understanding um, that, like as Ms. Spencer mentioned, um, not universally accepted. Um, certainly in this day and age and looking at where they were uh, ranked locally um, that was a decision that was made at that time I guess I, I read lots and lots of minutes I didn't see a lot of discussion about it I, I, I think I'm, I'm torn I somewhat agree with what you just said I was there not so long ago trying to get back I'm sure Jamie is there trying to hire, I mean, you go to try to hire him. Jim Lachlan quits tomorrow, he's gonna to have a tough time matching what somebody's salary. I understand all that, but it's like, oh well, we did it, and we did it on the last, the last meeting of an outgoing superintendent. It just looks bad, and looks half the problem. That's, and again, that's a personal opinion, not this committee's opinion, I don't think. Um, so, there I am, and we can, we can leave it at that, but it, it, it makes it tough. What does it, did the 4% bring them to up above all of Rames or, or North Albert or wherever? I think it brought us up. 
Uh, some of those contracts are not yet settled in those other districts, so I don't know where specifically where all of them fall. Uh, but before we negotiated in, in that contract, we were at the bottom, as um, Ms. Spencer identified for you. Can somebody so, give me the Reader's Digest version? I mean, truly, it's finance enough of steps and lanes. Because it, it, that, I mean, there's nobody else that does that, not in the municipal world. They've got, they've got, oh, you can go up these three steps, but then you can shift over to this lane, and maybe go up another two steps, and, and what's the net result of a teacher, and, and, and I don't know even what the names are. Step one goes to step two, but now it's lane four. Mm -hmm. What does that do? It's a good question. So the reader's digest version is steps go from 1 to 15 through the contract, and the lanes are based on your um, degree, your bachelor's, your bachelor's plus, um, we don't have bachelor's plus 15 anymore, we did, but we don't, you know, it's bachelor's, master's, master's plus 30, master's 45, master's 60 slash doctorate. So you move down a step, as a teacher you, you, or you, the thought is that you generally start at your B1 straight out of school. We rarely hire at B1. Uh, and you move your way by getting a master's degree, which you're required to do within five years uh, in the state of Massachusetts, um, and move down for every year of service, uh, paid for 106 days, basically, based per contract. But um, uh, moving down the grid to doctorate step 15, basically. Um, so from about off the top of my head, I don't know, $48,000 to roughly 90-something, 100-something. So that can happen. Every year you teach under a license, you just keep moving down. Right. And then throughout your career, as you hit milestones in your degree, you move to the right. And at the same time, you're still working under that license, and that's how you move down. So the only way to shift across is to go to school and you're required, as you said, in the first five years to get to master's at the least. And then that's how, that's how that, um, that system works. And it's, it's across the board. So you brought that up, I think, Mr. Connolly, around every school system in the state uses the same um, method. Their grades are different, and people pay attention to that as well. We've heard it. I've had people come and try to negotiate for hire. Well, this is our bachelor's step three. This is where we're at. It's not. It's not negotiable um, in that regard. So, um, and, so, and sometimes we've had trouble securing people over over time um, as you go through the interviews. But um, you know, ultimately, you want to stay as competitive as possible. So, thank you. Thank you. Really quickly, I just want to say for the record that everything that Denise just said is completely accurate. There is no argument in the numbers. I, completely trust and believe that those numbers are 100% accurate. Um, we've long talked about the salary issues in Franklin. I said this 100 ways from Sunday. Our tax levy for the town is not what other aspiring communities we want to be yet. And so therefore, the issue of the cold, for those of you that don't know the acronym, cost of living adjustment, okay? And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because of what the question was on the steps and lanes. Every unit, if you're a bargaining unit, and we'll consider non-union kind of its own unit, 
right? Because as you just pointed out, there's a market base with a fire chief, a TA. The issue just for my own self, being the town administrator, COLA equity to me is extraordinarily important because this is about culture, this is about getting the most out of people, and it's about treating people with the most respect and fairness for what their role is on the team. 10 miles down the street, we hear about do your job all the time, right? If your job is to snap the football, do the best you can at that. The difficulty with culture is that you can't really have one department over here and another over there. It doesn't work well as a team. Custodians, trades, maintenance, firefighters, police officers, they can't do their job without us, and we can't do our job without them. So when you don't have COLA equity, regardless of the legal definitions of they have their contractual obligations and fair business, with the law, I have mine, we both have those situations. There's nobody disagreeing that there's a mandate anywhere that we have to have the same goal. We've debated this for years. I'm not, and that's what Denise just mentioned. But I need people to understand at least my one view on this from one person's perch. COLA equity is about fairness to everyone. When one unit gets two, and another gets four, one unit gets one, and another gets two and a half, the cost of living adjustment feels inequitable. So if you're a custodian cleaning up the building, you feel lesser than other people. Sorry, that's just the way they feel. When you're running into a burning building, you feel lesser than someone else, okay? We all know every unit Firefighters don't get steps and lanes, okay? We don't, firefighters don't get summers off and all the other <laughs> stereotypes that we have of each unit. Teachers don't get overtime, right? We, we all know teachers may not get an educational incentive on the same parity as a police officer, Quinnville. All, you know, snow and ice removal. DPW employees get double time for certain hours in snow and ice removal. Why? Those are unique circumstances within each contract that respect the work and the incentive within that job. So as steps and lanes were just explained, that is all the financial incentive for a teacher to be able to get a master's degree, to get paid more, to move up the, to get promoted. It's no different than any other unit. It's just done in a different way because firefighters work 24-hour shifts, custodians work late after night, and the, you know, DPW, we talked about snow plowing earlier, DPW employees, are out there while we're at home, safe and sound, on remote learning, on, on Wi-Fi, complaining when the power is gonna come back on so we can charge our phones an hour. There are real people out plowing roads in dangerous situations. Every unit and every employee has their role in this team. And that's just the way, as stubborn as it may sound, <laughs> that's the way I think. And I've been in this business long enough to see the fracture in culture, in communities, that make communities a lot less desirable to work for. They know it, I know it, and you know it. There are towns that people do not want to work for. You can Google it and you get it. This town is the inverse. Peter Padula, former Council Pudula, was right. People completely emulate this town on almost everything we do. And when you have a team clicking and working as well as we do as a team, when those COLAs, cost of living adjustment, not raises, not the double time, not steps and lanes, not the other stuff there in the contracts, it does make people feel 
less important or more important. And I think everybody has to really understand that, um, that that is a serious issue. So when Denise just mentioned a moment ago, again, in an accurate statement, that we're disappointed in the narrative around this, yeah, all of us are. We are all disappointed. And we're not disappointed because we don't believe that the, that the, that the maps and the rates don't show that our employee, our teachers are paid less. I guarantee you every one of our employees supports our teachers to be able to get paid the best that they get paid. We have a phenomenal team. Our firefighters, please go to them. We can, it, it's a great, great place. But these things have typically long-term consequences on, on the issues of fairness and equity and how people feel that they're being treated. That was enhanced more so by the fact that the contracts just happened to come up at the end of a two and a half year pandemic where people are already feeling pretty, pretty jumpy about all this stuff and whatnot. So um, it's a very, very important thing that um, I've spoken to uh, many in the school department about. I have the best job in Massachusetts and you know I can't speak for Lucas, but I can say that um, the superintendent job here is certainly one uh, that I think a lot of people envy appreciate as being probably one of the best jobs in Massachusetts too. Um, and we were both instilled with uh, fortunate predecessors who started that culture that we are so lucky to have here in Franklin. Um, when you have that culture, um, you actually save money in the long run because you don't have units pitted against each other. One gets a three and then next year another unit's up, they get a four and then they come back two years later and now they want four. And the costs escalate to a point where you, the tax levy can't necessarily sustain all that. And so um, there's nothing that's going to prohibit um, them from going and doing their bargaining, just like inverse with me. Um, but I do want the community to know, as well as the finance committee and everybody else listening at home on Zoom land, the COLA is not just a, it's a cost of living adjustment. It is about culture. It is about getting the most out of the team. And it really is a recruitment tool in and of itself. I can't tell you how many employees walk in my office, and I think the schools have the same situation, where they hear about the great community to work from in Franklin. The facilities, the equipment, all of the other camaraderie that we have, the great events that the, all, of our, all of our teams do on their own. That is a part of it. And when you start to hear those negative narratives that Denise just pointed out, People have to be aware that those are serious cracks that can really actually end up having a long-term consequence down the road. So I uh, appreciate you listening, Mr. Chairman. I just had to get that out based off what we heard from both the Steps and Lanes and, uh, and uh, Chair Spencer. Thank you. Thank you. And I just wanted to let you know, we've been, I've been writing down a little list of things that you want to follow up on. So I put, a, I put Reader's Digest of Steps and Lanes. Um, you can add this one to it. Okay. I hear about unfunded, unfunded mandates all the time. I would like to see sometime a list of them and how much they cost. What is an unfunded mandate and what it costs? And that's obviously not a tonight discussion. <laughs> oh, I was ready. I know, she's, yeah. she was ready. <laughs> Send it or something. You, you have my email. Um, yes, I do. The other thing, eh, where is it? Oh. Is she the entire financial department? 
No. Well, who else? No. It seems like every meeting we go to, like ask Mary. How? I mean, don't scare Mr. Sandini back here has got a harem somewhere. Oh, I think I'm getting bad vibes from him. That is a question. I, I just think there's enough crap going on between mandates and blah, 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 that that ought to be looked at in your budget. Um, and something just... <laughs> Yeah, there's five members of my team. There are five other individuals that work for the school business administrator. Okay, I just want to make sure. And anybody else have questions? And I'll think of what I was going to ask. Just getting old stuff really safe. Anybody? No, I was, I was going to comment. Jamie commented on a, a couple of things that I was going to say. And first of all, I want to appreciate you guys letting us um, ask questions as we went along because I thought that was very valuable. Um, so we didn't have to go back. But I think kind of getting overall tenor, I think when we talk about the budget committee, when, the, when it comes to budget time, the school mm -hmm. seems to come in with like, here's what we got. And we don't have much commentary on, hey, town funds are going up 3%, but we're asking for five. And I think that's where some, maybe some of the things, like even like you were talking about your justification with your 4%. I don't know that we got that color when you came and presented. So I think those types of things where it just seems like it comes in in a bubble with not considering the other elements around it, I think would be helpful in the future. No, thank you. I'll write this down. I went through the town's audit looking for school committee stuff. There's nothing in there that I can find. The school, when you do a search, you know, find on the page, I think the schools are mentioned eight times. In the town, excuse me, the town audit? Yeah, well, it's the town audit, but the last time I checked, you guys are the town. No, I was just clarifying what audit you were yeah. referring to. I, is there any, I'm a former banker, so I'm familiar with people looking over my shoulder. <laughs> Who's looking over your shoulder? Is there a, does the school committee have, what's the name of the? Melanson Heath. Yes. Melanson Heath. Yeah. Is there an audit department? Yes. Do they? They audit. They audit There's our. There's nothing and, on the web. The, that audit is on the website. You can read it. And we are part of that audit. I couldn't find it. We are included in that audit, and I'm sure Mr. Sandini would um, explain so that on, as well. So it's somewhere I can sit down. There is also an NBA report audit on financial reporting that I do. Um, so that is audits audited as well. Is it on the website? Um, it, it's. It's not. It's there were no findings, so it wasn't put on on the website. In all honesty, for the end of year report. I, a suggestion. Um, it ought to so be the, the, the time is. Um, um, the the single audit also is part of the town wide audit uh, and the single audit of federal programs because a lot of the funding that we're getting is from federal funding. Um, that's also included. Okay, I have one other thing that's lost. To me. Anybody else? Um, just a couple. One observation uh, that leads to maybe a more specific question, but uh, it seems that, well, one, the growth of the budget really has to do with not teachers, right? And so I guess I'm curious what the cost differences of support staff versus teachers 
um, because does a smaller classroom size with a, a good teacher enable you to provide better outcomes than adding a lot of different support staff or is that really just you absolutely need these support staff that potentially are paid more than teachers I don't know right just trying to get a sense of how that's done and how that's thought through because in some ways it feels like um, the community it, you're taking on a lot more than was ever asked of schools in the past and I totally understand that and so I'm just trying to understand you know at, at what point is it kind of like well that's not really what we're supposed to be doing and maybe there's other community resources that should be used not school budget and not school resources to justify right because you coming before us and justifying all of this additional support support staff to me like that that's that's interesting and really tough and that's where it gets very opaque for me yeah. so I think having um, class sizes in a, in a desirable range right now we have yep. some guidelines that we try to follow 18 to 22 um, for our K to 2 and then 3 to 12 you look at uh, higher than that so you're looking at 22 to 26 six ish so when we try to look at that's like I think what we've established in this town as being um, those pieces so I think that is one factor there's also the other factor is how are we supporting the environment I talked a little bit about that earlier yeah. but ultimately what this really comes down to as well is, is every year when we talk about the process we go through to evaluate what's working what's not how are we looking at like an academic return on investment, if you will, yes. right? How are we seeing what we're doing? Is it working? And I think we talked a little bit about data that we're using to try to do that. But um, there's just two other points I would make. Um, your point around connecting to other resources is something we share an interest in with the town. We don't want to be, we are the hub for a lot of things and we want to care for children and educate them wholeheartedly and in a well-rounded way. We can't just teach math because kids come in with a host of needs and we can't just say we can ignore those and just do math and I, I mentioned this at one of the school committee meetings like if we work for a factory and we're producing something we could say you know what we're not having that many um, people buying things so let's cut down on shifts let's tell folks let's just produce what we need to make the case we have kids coming every day with a variety of needs that there's an expectation uh, morally and legally that we meet the needs of every kid that's in the room so it's we try to look at every aspect of that when we design and put a budget forward that supports those needs um, you bring up a really good point um, and the needs have changed and we are trying to fill and, and support um, the kids in our, our buildings but these are all part of those discussions so a social worker for example is someone who's directly connecting families with outside resources because um, our partnerships with resources but someone has to do that work to make that happen as well. So, yeah, it's just difficult when I hear thirty percent, sure. right? Our our higher need, and I, you know that wasn't the case twenty years ago. So I don't know if it's that we're assessing needs much different than we were in the past. And so I guess mm -hmm. I have a kid, that, right? I've got several kids that are in in school with you guys, and uh, I really appreciate. And I think that they're very well educated, and so but they don't ever talk about support staff, right? So it's not something we ever hear about, and it may just be that, that they happen to not need it, but um, but that's where I just try and understand that figure, because I think that when I look at higher education in general, that is, you're not, you're not alone. Like, this is across the board, 
across universities very much so. And I just think if I were a teacher and I could do more or fewer students or something, mm -hmm. and I, I agree, the class size seems okay. So that's where I don't understand where the disconnect is, mm -hmm. that there needs to be so much additional support staff. So I think maybe we could add a little bit more. Or, or even to go on that, you have all this additional support staff, but what's, how much are we spending on, for example, each of the different categories you're talking about. And is dollar amount, human capital wise, whatever. Um, is it enough? Is it not enough? How many teeth how many is there a different way to approach it than just, you know, if all the students are scattered in different schools, can we bring them together for certain reasons? Who knows? In, in one conversation we had, we talked about doing really well and being in the bottom quarter of the state and then in this and I say this is like a, to round up the conversation and another aspect we're in the bottom quartile but we still want to look at how we leveraging our resources and using what we have so I, I would just say that we're not um, someone who's sitting um, as the district who is is at that top um, spend spending bracket that's um, trying to justify the purchases we're making um, with the extra money we have but we are trying to utilize but I will promise you this we take this seriously and we want to be fiscally responsible but also making sure we are meeting the needs of every kid that we have and i think there's an expectation in this town that we do that and we do that well i also think that also i'm, I'm also a taxpayer a property owner in town and my own kids are in the school i'm invested in our success and our town success i appreciate what mr helen mentioned about um, the services all of our other departments offer and and what we benefit from is living here um, so we're, we want to be as fiscally responsible as possible, but um, ultimately we have an obligation to make sure that we're, we're putting forth the best program, because I do think that impacts my house value when my schools are good. Oh, yeah. And when you don't have that, that that's a, this is a complex system, and we're a piece of it that, that um, those it are less important. It's, it, that information is rather opaque. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see what it looks like. Yeah, understood. Um, I've apparently been ignoring Chunna on Zoom. <laughs> Chunna, you have questions? I did have one question, and thank you. Um, no, you weren't ignoring me. I just kind of had a question about what was being discussed around um, like unfunded mandates and the um, high needs like students. I know public schools are required to um, pay for a lot of services that I think high needs students or students with disabilities require. Um, and I was just wondering if a data point could be shared um, if the school has it about like what is the cost of the, um, the high needs group category, um, not just like the numbers, but how much um, of the school budget goes towards um, those types of costs. I know that average the per pupil cost is just an average, mm -hmm. but it doesn't break it out for like those specific categories? So I can't tell you specifically how much all of our high needs population costs. Um, what I will do is give you one example um, of um, a student who might be in an out of district placement that could. could I, I'm, I'm not hearing you. So oh, microphone. Uh, talk to the microphones. Sure. They, no, Hopefully, no, it won't hit no, 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 twice. No, no. Um, so, so um, I can give you an example of one of uh, of, of our students who might be in a an out of district specialized placement. 
could be a residential placement, it could be a private school placement, it could be anywhere from $40,000 to $250,000 on an annual basis for the cost to educate that student in a free, uh, to, to provide a free appropriate public education for that student in the least restrictive environment per law. Um, so, so we, um, I'm going to say, educate about 75 students in they access their curriculum through an out-of-district placement, um, which, as I said, could cost anywhere between $45,000 and $250,000, a year. I mean, at $250,000 a year at 75 students. No, we're not. <laughs> there are not 75 in a $350,000 placement, but there are a few. Two. Two. Um, 250 mm -hmm. Yeah, and that doesn't include the cost of transportation. We're not transporting in those re types of residential placements, um, but we are transporting to private school placements, um, and the costs uh, can be significant, and that is where some of our circuit breaker reimbursement comes from, as I mentioned earlier. Some of the costs associated with our budget also incorporate students that we're able to educate in district that would otherwise go to an outside placement, but because we offer programming and hire specialized teachers um, to teach students in, in district. We provide our own in-district in transportation. You saw me glance back to Mrs. Morano as our uh, assistant super um, student, uh, student services, excuse me, it's late. Um, so um, we, uh, we often look at what are the needs of the students and how can we um, best meet their needs. And if we can do that within our district, then that's what we do and we create programs um, that allow for that. And far more cost-effective way to educate our students and keeps our students in our schools if we're better than their population. Chandra, does that answer your point? Yeah, that's helpful. Um, and just to also uh, expand on that, are there other funding opportunities for things like this? I know that they're considered like unfunded mandates or other grants or anything for maybe towns or districts that have um, like a high number of high-need students? I'm not aware of grant funding. Uh, well, we can we can use our um, our federal grant money under um, um, 94132 under IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Act. We can use that funding for out-of-district placements. Um, we currently use that funding for our uh, support professionals, uh, educational support professionals in our classrooms. Um, but that is one option um, for the utilization of that. Thank you. Just a couple questions. On she has a Sorry. <laughs> a lot have been checked off, so I'll try to be brief. I know it's late very much. Not dwelling on the per, per people spend, but curious as to, I, as I hear about our our per people spend being, call it at the bottom, somewhat quartile, right, right above that quartile. But however, we're, we are considered one of the best school districts, so that's fantastic. But when we think about how are we measuring that, like how are we comfortable with our per people spend? Are we looking at anything, any intangibles? Is it the, the map, the mapping that we're doing now? Is it is it building out analytics, or have we been historically doing those types of analytics to say, well, we know we're doing something right, and it kind of goes along the lines of what I said, which is now probably a couple hours ago, but we seem to be using our money efficiently as far as the 
per people spend, because we do have a great school district and we are in the bottom quartile of spend, but how do we, because how do we know that? Like, how do we measure that we don't need to increase that spend in certain areas? Does that make sense? Maybe we aren't um, looking at it and we're just, I don't know, but trying to figure out how we're comfortable with that for people spend. I think when we design our budget we try to look at what, what are our goals and what are we trying to achieve and then how do we build out programs and supports and what we need and it's not just creating more staff or adding more people but it's a combination of things so I mentioned the map testing as an example yep. um, but that's an example of trying to get um, information on kids and good data on kids we also have a system that pulls in that it pulls in MCAS scores and it what's called Panorama. So we're trying to build the, the systems. You know, we've had some of these pieces in place um, for a long time. I think Franklin has a great reputation for education. I think we could continue to improve. And I think when we design budgets throughout the year and present to the school committee for approval and go through, we try to look at where are our needs. You know, is writing a need at the middle school that we need to focus on? So we have to think about how are we designing our professional development? Do we have a curriculum coach in there who can work with teachers directly? Like those are costs that are associated with a tangible goal and area of growth that we want to move. Um, we've been pretty clear, I think, as a, as a community and as a school committee, MCAS is not the end-all be-all to how you rank a school system. There's so much more to it. Even if we do decent, even if we do above the state average, it's not something, I would say that even if we didn't, you know, um, but we've, we've been um, fortunate to retain some really strong teachers and have some pieces in place that allow us to do well by kids. But I think we could continue to, to add more support. And I think about, you mentioned um, like uh, a librarian, for example, really media literacy. And we think of the world kids are going to be entering as they move on and trying to make sure that they have the resources they need to find information and use information and communicate it effectively. Teachers are teaching that, but there's also other people who are involved with more specialized. I often hear about financial literacy. I think about what I didn't learn in high school and what would have benefited me before I joined the Marines and was down at Camp Lejeune spending money I probably shouldn't have been spending. Um, but I would tell you that if I had understood compound interest, just that concept, I think I would have been better off on both ends, investing and um, borrowing. So uh, those ideas, but these types of things in corporate, you, know, you have to think about where does it fit in the schedule, who's teaching it, how does it look. So these are things that um, we would, would aim to, that's how I envision our system, really helping support kids so that when they get that diploma, we've rounded that off. If we're in a situation where we're not spending, you know, what what it cost to put some of those pieces in place, then we say that's gonna come off the table for now. And sometimes, as you know, when you develop your own budget, whether you're at a job or a company and you're involved with that, or your own home budget, you have to look at how do you maximize what you have to get the most out of it. So that's how I, I would just frame that for you. Okay, so yeah, it's almost fair to say we don't even really, well, I'm not saying you don't look at it, but we don't dwell on people's spend. It's really driven by are we meeting goals that we set as a school district. And we don't, we're not saying, oh, we're spending less, we need to be spending more. It's are we meeting our goals? Where do we have gaps? Where can we, is that fair? I think if we were able to support more, the per pupil would go up, right? Yes. But yeah. we, I don't think we say, we, we're not picking a per pupil number, because yeah. I, I don't think that's how we've developed the budget. I know? think it's just one more data right. point in our story. Right. Okay. That makes sense. And then do we look at, and maybe I'm dwelling on, now I am dwelling on per pupil. 
And I'm saying this also from the mindset of the redistricting because a lot of that has come up is the equitable disbursement of money amongst the schools. Are we looking at the demographics amongst, I'll call it elementary because that of course is part of the bigger topic, but are we looking at is, you know, I'll say Kennedy getting less money than Keller. Um, I say less money, I know schools are going to get more or less money, but do we look at it at a per pupil, what is, you know, if we have, call it 10% of the kids at um, Keller need special services, their per, per pupil is this, do we get into that granular analytics to make sure that all that funding is equitable? And I guess, can we at some point in the future maybe get a summary of that to look at? Yeah, so so the number of positions that are budgeted at each school by category are included in the budget, um, yeah. and, and I can certainly have a conversation with you about that uh, offline at this point. But but yes, we we um, we meet with principals to talk about what their needs are for their student population. So you know you mentioned Keller, who might have um, a, a specialized program. There, so we're going to provide some additional staff to support that specialized program. It's not it's not likely to have 25 students in that classroom, so there might be two teachers in there with 10 students. There might be a teacher and a, and an ESP in there. Um, so so yes, we're absolutely looking at that in terms of the the um, I'll call it just the building based budget. Um, we give the principals an allotment. Um, to purchase materials and supplies for their building, um, you know, books and, and, and pay for the things that they need in their building based on a per pupil count. Um, so, so yes, it does vary based on the school and the um, nuance. The number of kids, the number of right. students. Yeah. Different categories. And then, sorry, just one, on staffing, how many positions do we have open? Have they been open for a long time? And then is there a point in time where a position has been open long enough that we would decide, all right, we don't need it because it's been open for so long? I'm just curious of how that looks so, in a world where it is very difficult to right. You've, you may have heard, um, like I think physics was mentioned earlier today. So what we've done is we've had to, in certain situations where we can't fill, we've had to have teachers who are teaching a full load, they each get a prep every day, you get a prep period to prepare. Um, we have to um, have them teach an additional class, and, and it's voluntary, but they'll do it as part of the process, and then what we have to do is um, compensate them for not taking um, a, a prep, having a preparatory period during that day, because they're now in the physics class so each period, the students get the same teacher who's licensed as a Franklin teacher. In addition, we've added um, a virtual high school program. It's, an, it's basically an online program that teaches the physics concepts, assess students, and whatnot. So that's, that's one example. Um, in, in an English class, um, we, we have the same thing where we have a teacher going in and teaching, um, just teaching the course, the courses that the, that, that teacher would have taught. So, um, so those they are getting two. compensated for that. <laughs> they have, they have they to, yes. Okay. Yeah. So kind of my follow-up question is, where is, in our budget, when we have those vacancies, where do those funds go? But they are being allocated in, in scenarios where we do have teachers covering. So if a teacher's covering, other times it's a long-term sub, you may know if someone's on a maternity leave, we would pay a long-term substitute to cover the course for their time out. That's another example I would, I would use. Thank you. Sure.
Anybody else? One more question. How many civics teachers do we have? Another history teacher. with me is when you see somebody do an interview on the street and they stick a microphone under their thing and they don't know anything about how government works and it's been and that's that's a that's a next time question. I'm gonna write that one down too. Yeah, I think if you're, you're saying civics. I'm trying to make sure I don't combine no, uh, right. social studies. How does civics? How does the yeah. Congress work? How does the state house work? Mm -hmm. How does the town work? I was just in an observation where they showed the Jimmy Kimmel. Um, yeah. To the kids. That was a, that was the hook the teacher used, and then he went into um, well, the lesson was around some nice pieces of that. Why? Yeah. This brings the people to vote. vote. Yeah. I did add that. Some final comments. Um, this is the I've been on this committee I think since <coughs> I think it's ten years now of thereabouts. This is the best presentation from a school committee we have ever had. Responsive, didn't like all the questions, the four percent question clearly hit a hot button, and that but that's fine. That's what we get to do. We're the only watchdog committee in the town. Mm -hmm. Frankly, the council doesn't ask a lot of questions when it comes to budget. They just don't. They don't have. That's not their purview. Well, it's their purview, but it's not their mindset. This one does, as you can tell. There were some pretty heavy questions here. People were prepared, and I appreciate it to the committee. Mm -hmm. But that, that was as good a presentation as we had from any school committee in 10 years. We thank you. Thank you for inviting us. I think this is an opportunity for us to share, and I think those questions, as hard as they are, are questions people have within the community as well. So um, we appreciate the, the time you took to prepare Thanks. questions. I think this is the most people we've had on Zoom since this has been going on. How many, how many are watching on YouTube? Which also is a Channel 29 or whatever. And 12, 11, whatever. yep. So, and if I may, Mr. Chairman, just offer a few comments in, uh, in closing, just a few, few brief remarks. Thank you very much for your kind words, and thank you all for taking the time, uh, I know it's late, taking time to speak to us this evening and for your questions. And just to just in closing, just to frame this, and really the purpose behind all the numbers, all the data that we talked about tonight, is ultimately the education of our students here in Franklin and the quality of that education that we're providing all of our students. We um, spoke a number of times of the different higher need students that we're having in our district, how we may have fewer students but higher needs in a variety of areas, whether it be um, students with special needs, low-income students, um, English language learning students, and you know, as mentioned, the, the services we're providing for those students. Now, they, they deserve the best possible education, just the same as any other student um, in, in, the, in the town of Franklin. And, you know, we have the obligation to give them that education, but it's not just those students that are benefiting from these new services that we're providing, it's, it's really, it's all of our students. The interventionists, curriculum um, curriculum specialists, counselors, now those, the, all of those positions, they provide a higher quality education for every single student that, um, that and which really improves everyone's you know, chances of being more successful past Franklin Public Schools. I'm a proud Franklin High graduate class of 2009, and I'm, very happy to see that we are offering services now to our current generation of students that I wasn't receiving when I was back at Franklin High. And not only that, but when we offer these specialized services for our higher needs students, that allows 
for them to get their care education that they need that doesn't take away a teacher from the other student population, that doesn't reroute other resources and allows for the entire student population to get the education that, that they need as well. And uh, when we take a step back, it's all these pieces come together to provide everyone the educational experience that um, all our students need and deserve. And when that happens, our community does become a more desirable place for all of us to live and be in. And that you know, people notice that people move here. That brings that brings in more 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 revenue and um, all sorts of other resources to our town. So ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, that's that's what's behind these numbers is the better better quality of education that we're providing our students here, the better quality of life that we're providing for all of our residents. So thank you very much for having us this evening, and that we really appreciate you taking the time. We shall meet again. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we have two agenda items left. <coughs> Future agenda items. Who else would you like to first? <laughs> so, um, through you, Jim, and so uh, it, it's not 100% guaranteed, but um, the January meeting will likely be, I hope, the capital plan, uh, some additional ARPA funds, and um, and uh, the compensation and classification study results. The consultant uh, is available that night to come in. And, well, she'll be zooming in from another state, but she'll be here uh, over Zoom to walk through um, the compensation and classification study that was just about complete. So that's probably a full meeting. Um, February, I'll ask for the permitting departments for the health planning, conservation, and our building commissioner, passports, all that stuff. Um, and then March, you're probably gonna have a joint budget subcommittee meeting um, at some point. Um, uh, and then also, we're gonna have to have Brutus come in to talk about stormwater credits. So it's not just about charging fees, but how do you reduce your fees? So that's looking like the next three months, maybe kind of shelled around a little bit, but after that, during the budget season, depends on who else you might want to have come in, but that's, that's generally what we scripted out based on the feedback already. Yeah. So, they're set for a while. I think it's pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty good. Uh, now, how do you want to do, you have an executive session. Yep. So you have to make, a, somebody has to make a motion, it's written right here, to enter executive session to consider the purchase exchange, et cetera, et cetera. And so we have to second that, and then Alicia will help us with Zoom, and then everybody has to leave. Um, so we can talk about uh, uh, private property. Okay, um, I make a motion to have an executive session to consider the purchase exchange lease of value real property. Second. Uh, uh, George? Yes. Natalie? Yes. Stephanie? Yes. Tyrell? Yes. Chana? Yes. Michael? Yes. We are now producing this in collaboration with Franklin TV and Franklin Public Radio. This podcast is my public service effort for Franklin, but we can't do it alone. We can always use your help. How can you help? If you can use the information that you find here, please tell your friends and neighbors. If you don't like something here, please let me know. Through this feedback loop, we can continue to make improvements. And I thank you for listening. 
For additional information, please visit franklinmatters.org. If you have questions or comments, you can reach me directly at suresteve at gmail.com. The music for the intro and exit was provided by Michael Clark and the group East of Shirley. The piece is titled Ernesto Manana, copyright Michael Clark and Tintype Tunes in 2008, and used with their permission. I hope you enjoy. And by the way, you can also subscribe and listen to Franklin Matters Radio on your favorite podcast app. Search in podcasts for Franklin Matters.